Hey guys, Doc here. Welcome back to another episode of Adventure Fit Radio. So today, the episode we have for you is a flashback episode. So while we prepare for 2018, and trust me, we have some pre- uh, preparation to do, we are, we're pretty much ready to go, but it's going to be bloody exciting 2018. Um, I'll explain about that in a sec, but while we prepare for 2018, uh, me and Tommy are having a couple of weeks of, well... We're not having the weeks off because we're recording shows all uh, in the meantime, but we're just uh, getting a few shows in and getting a new process down. So while we do that, we're having two flashback shows. My favorite show uh, from, well, forever, I think this show, Rusty Young and Tony Doherty are probably my favorites. Um, and then we're also going to release next week one of Tommy's favorites from back right back in the past in the in the vault. Um so, for those of you that have listened to this show, Rusty Young, then apologies, um, but I recommend listening to it again because it's a bloody fun show. Uh, to those of you guys that haven't, this was a show that was amazing for us because um, very, very early days, it was our first time we went off-site from Melbourne. We went up to Sydney to do a, some interviews with a few guests and Rusty was one of those guests. Rusty is the man that wrote Marching Powder. So, if you don't know Marching Powder, it is one of the greatest... Um, travel biographies I suppose it's not really a travel biography it's a it's a story of a man who was a drug smuggler who got thrown in oblivion jail cell uh, that used to run tours so in Bolivia you would go to La Paz and you would go into a tour of uh, San Pedro prison Rusty did the tour was so um, interested by what had gone on and and especially by Tommy McFadden the, the lead protagonist but the story of Tommy McFadden he was so fascinated that he decided to stay and live in the prison for six months. Um, he documented Tommy's life. He he wrote the book, basically. He got all the notes that he, that he used to write the book. He's actually still best friends with Tommy to this day. Um, we caught up with Rusty uh, when he was in Melbourne recently and he put us on the phone to Tommy. We said hi and Tommy's Tommy's been unwell. Rusty's been over visiting him. So it's actually pretty awesome. If you haven't read uh, Marching Powder, go ahead and do so for sure. This is a hilarious show. This is one of the first shows that I really got a feeling that, you know, our podcast could create uh, a very unique opportunity for me and Tommy to really interview our heroes. Marching Powder was my favorite book of all time before I read Shantaram. And sorry if listening, Rusty, it's still right up there. Shantaram is my number one. Shantaram made me cry and unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever way you look at it, no other book has been able to do that. Um, but, I mean, it's, as good as, it's, it's pretty much as good, as, a book as, as good of a book as I've ever read. And the fact that I was able to sit down, connect, have an amazing conversation with uh, with Rusty was just it was just awesome. We finished this conversation and and it was at Rusty's mum and dad's house. We met his family and just had a great time. As we went to leave, I went to shake Rusty's hand and he just pushed my hand away and just gave me a big hug. And um, it's just it's an amazing thing to have a platform like this. Um, obviously, as an entrepreneur, I'm out there always taking inspiration from other people. You know, there's a lot of people around the world. Um, I'm about to write a blog on this actually this week, but uh, people that I look up to, Aubrey Marcus is one of those. Uh, Mark Bell is another one. Joe Rogan. Um, there's a lot of people out there that I really love the way they think. I love what they've done in business. I love the positive impact they've had on the world. And I aspire for myself and for Adventure to be like that. Um, and I'm going to meet Mark in a couple of months. Um, 
we're going to do a podcast together. We're also doing a bit of business with AdventureFit together. Um, going to hopefully meet Aubrey at some point soon. Don't know if I'll meet Rogan anytime soon as he's one of the probably busiest men on the planet. But having a platform like this is amazing because we're able to go and, and, and um, meet our heroes. So that was really great for me. It was, it was, I was over the moon. It was such a great experience. Anyway, I've waffled on enough. Hopefully, you guys like the show. Um, no ads today because it's a, it's a flashback episode, so we're not going to bore you with any ads. Um, Rusty Young, Tom Ahern, myself, uh, hope you enjoy it. Now, before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one, no touching of the hair or face. And that's it. Yo. Discovery Roger, go for deploy. Where did we come from? Are we alone in the universe? What is the future of the human race? How many if you want to live? I did. Good, 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 good. Here we are, guys. We're sitting, uh, sitting with Rusty Young. Or actually, uh, we were scheduled to to sit at um, Rusty's friend's house, but Rusty's mate had a bender, so we're at Rusty's <laughs> mum and dad's, and we've got to keep it quiet. Shout out to <laughs> Rusty's mate. <laughs> <laughs> They've just come back from England. Uh, this is the, we're Saturday after the Brexit, so they're uh, they're sleeping in today. So we've got to keep really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> so as always, before we throw it over to Rusty and introduce him, we're going to do. Uh, Tommy's tribute. It's going to be a whisper tribute <laughs> to Rusty Young. Alrighty. So uh, this is my whisper slash really deep and sexy voice that I'm going to uh, parade here. This is uh, something in the way he moves. It's a tribute <laughs> of a James Taylor song to my good friend Rusty Young here. <laughs> something in the way he moves. Looks my way and travel to the south Every time I read that book I get high If I'm feeling down and blue Or troubled by my hits of coke I really need to read the powder book but I feel fine. I can't believe it. I'm whispering. Fine. Anytime I read the book and I'm high. Despite what the book says, I'm still going to ram ample amounts of cocaine when I go out because sometimes you really just need to pick me up. And when I'm well, I will tell you that it's a good book Because Munching Powder has been the best read I've read in the past few years And I'm close to tears when I'm confirmed that Rusty's going to be on the show <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mr. Young <laughs> Wow, what a tribute, thank yeah. you very much I think that's going to go international, it's viral yeah. for sure was that, a, was that a tribute to Rusty or a tribute to cocaine? I think okay. that was a tribute to cocaine and Rusty just happened to be in the song <laughs> Rusty, hey, welcome to the show. Thank you, and uh, welcome to your listeners. Yeah, cool. So, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Rusty? A little bit about your background, and uh, yeah. 
Sure. Um, I grew up in Sydney. I was born in Melbourne, and I Melbourne boy. Yeah, good yeah. start. <laughs> uh, just turned forty-one. I did university at Sydney here. Did a degree in finance and law, but really just didn't like that uh, career path. It was basically, you know, if you get the marks to get in, that's sort of what you did. And I sort of followed that path, thinking, oh, this is a guaranteed path to whatever wealth and happiness and I really 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 hated it <laughs> so yeah. uh, but what I did love was writing and I, and I loved traveling as well so um, every opportunity I got during university breaks I'd always go traveling I went to the Middle East went through Europe mm-hmm. um, my parents took me overseas a few times when I was younger and so that was those those were two big passions um, writing and traveling and uh, and sport as well obviously I love fitness and stuff so cool so I yeah, basically ever since um, leaving university, that's sort of what I've tried to do is travel around the world, write and, and stay happy. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So what was it that um, what was it that made your mind up that you didn't want to go down the path of um, being a lawyer, being in the corporate world? Was there a certain thing? Yeah, there, there, was, a, there, was, a, there was a trigger event. I was, I was working for a, a leading merchant bank and uh, often you do really long weeks, like, like 70 hours and often on weekends as well. And so yep. it was a Saturday night. It was my friend's party. I think I was like 23 or so. Um, and my friends are calling me saying, are you coming? Are you coming to dinner? I was like, yeah, I'm coming. And they're like, no, you're not coming. You're, you're staying here doing this prospectus. And I was like, really? And then they're calling me from the nightclub and they're all, <laughs> they're all out drinking and doing whatever else. Um, saying, you coming? I'm like, yeah, I'm coming. And I was just like, this is not me. Saturday yeah, night, yeah. everyone else is out partying. I'm like, I don't want to spend my 20s and 30s, you know, under fluorescent lights in an office building, mm. you know, try, I mean, you can make money, you can buy a house, you can get a really nice, nice car, but big deal, you never get those years back. So, 100%. Yep. So, you know, at the risk of not making that same sort of level of um, income, I thought, you know what, I just want to be happy. I want to go and do the things that I am passionate about in the world. That's amazing. Mm. That's mm. exactly, I won't go into my story, but that's exactly the same mm. age that the same thing happened to me. I had, really? I had three properties when I was 23, just riddled with mortgage debt and so on and so forth. I had a really bad year. I was sick for a year and um, I did the same thing. I read your book and then I started traveling. I did six months through South America and uh, totally changed my life. Realized there's more important things. So, But like you said, we won't go into your story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, this is not about you. Yeah, right. This is about me. <laughs> this is about Rusty. <laughs> um, so so when, did you, um, when did you actually start writing? When did you start? Did you journal things? Did you do short, short blogs? Yeah, I had a, a, um, a school teacher in high school when I was 12 who got us to start writing a diary. Yep. And that was probably my first um, sort of serious attempts at writing was just doing a diary. And I still write a diary to this day. So I've probably got probably about two million word diary. Wow. So every now and then, my, my, now that I've been drinking for so long, I, uh, <laughs> I often forget what happened back in 1997. <laughs> so I just go back to my diary That's and great. I re- read back over my life. It's really interesting. So yeah, I probably started with, with a diary when I was 12 and probably around about 15 or so, I really started going, I absolutely love reading. I love writing. It's something I'd love to be able to do. And um, my parents were like, well, that's great, but what are you going to do for money? Because obviously, you know, being an artist of any kind or particularly being a writer in a, in a, in a small country with a small market like Australia, it's really difficult to mm. you know, try and make a living out of it, let alone do well. Um, and obviously, you know, I come from, f- my family's pretty hardworking family. And so that was always, they always encouraged me at least to have a plan B in place. Yeah. That was, that was basically why I pushed myself through university, even though I hated it. Yeah, for sure. Mm. That's not a bad plan B. That's what <laughs> Worst case scenario. Yeah. So um, is it actually, like you say, is it actually hard to make a living as a writer yourself? You've have, you've have one, you have one major hit and you have your next book coming out, which we'll talk about later, but is it, 
How does it? How does it? Um, yeah, look, it, the finances. I, I, I was, <clears throat> I've been pretty lucky. I mean, I, that was my first book. I wrote it when I was twenty-five. It came out when I was twenty-seven. Yep. Um, and yeah, I mean that with the movie deal selling that book around the world. But that's that's the exception. Um, yeah, I think for sure. I was reading some statistics recently that the average Australian writer's income is thirteen thousand dollars per year. Right. Wow. So you really do you need to have a second career option yeah. in, in place and. You know, since writing Marching Powder, I have had different jobs. I lived in South America, worked in South America. So, um, yeah, I think you've, you've got to keep a balance between the, the income you can get from writing and also other, trying to look at other sources of um, either other sources of income or looking at ways to make your life a lot cheaper. Like living, yeah. I spent a lot of time living outside of Australia um, in developing nations like, uh, you know, Asia, um, South America. Yep. Just where, wherever it's cheap to live, because obviously, as a writer, you can, you know, it's just, you don't need to be in an office. You can be anywhere. So yeah, for uh, sure. Mm. Um, yeah. All right. Before we go into, I want to ask about South America and where you, where you lived and what your time spent over there. But let's go into marching powder. So, um, you, how old were you when you went through South America? And then, did you, what brought on, what brought on the want to actually write? Um, Tommy's story and put into a book. Yeah, so I was traveling through South America when I was 24 years old with my then girlfriend. We just uh, were still at university. Yep. Um, and we were traveling through, I went through Mexico, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador. And um, and we we're just traveling around. And obviously, I was keeping my diary and sending out, this is in the early days of the internet, or relatively early days of the internet. Mm-hmm. So I was sending out um, just sort of, I guess, travelogues, um, yep. emails to friends. And that, obviously they would forward them on to their other friends. This is pre-Facebook, pre-Instagram, yeah, all that sort of stuff, pre, sure. pre-digital cameras even. This is the um, original World Wide Web. And yeah, so I was just sending out little little emails and then the one about the prison was just went, the equivalent of viral, in, in yeah. other words, like maybe it got forwarded a hundred times. <laughs> but, Which was um, the world record at the time. It was the yeah. world record. <laughs> um, yeah, so I ended up just at the, at the end of our, do you want to stop there because of the phone? Ah, it's cool. Because There's a phone in the background, but that yeah, was heard worse yeah, than that. That's right. They've <laughs> a lot worse than that. Okay. <laughs> um, Unless you need to get it, of course. No, no, it's not my, it's not my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so we were just traveling. We'd been traveling through Bolivia for two months, and then everyone was just saying, "Look, when you get to La Paz, you really need to go and visit the prison." And I was yep. like, "Why? Why on earth would anyone want to go and visit a, a third world prison on their vacation? Yeah. Isn't, isn't it dangerous?" And they're like, "No, no, it's not dangerous at all. The, the prisoners look after you. You know, there's women and children living in there. There's cats and dogs, and there's heaps of drugs." And I'm like, "This sounds really dangerous. Like, do you actually go inside?" And I'm like, "Yeah." So what happens is you 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 get to the door. You take your passport. You're not allowed to take a camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to hand your passport into the the gate guards. They and they open the gate and it shuts behind you. Clang, and then you're in this prison. It's a fully <laughs> fully functioning uh, prison for uh, for adult males. Yeah, but it's it doesn't at all seem like a like a prison. You walk in. There's uh, as I said before. There's women and children. There's cats and dogs. There's Coca-Cola signs. There's um, everyone's colourfully dressed. None of the prisoners wear uniforms, so they're mm-hmm. all dressed in civilian attire. And there are shops and there are televisions and such so a strange just, setup, isn't it? And, it's got to be one of the strangest imagine. things you'd ever see. Absolutely, like yeah. I, like I, like obviously my adrenaline was rushing. I was like, oh, you know, this is a this is a prison, yeah. right? And this is a third remember world where prison. you are. Remember yeah. where you are. And then Thomas greeted me at the gate. He said, "Hey, hey, man, how you doing?" I'm like, yeah. "All right." <laughs> and he had quite a big, good? yeah, good. He had quite a big um, bodyguard with him, like a sort of guy who was about six foot something. 
which is big in really big yeah. in South America. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he's just like, look, just keep cool. Nothing is going to happen to you. And he walked us around the prison. Uh, there are eight different sections. Each one of those sections has a, a hotel style star rating. So there's yeah. um, the five star ratings where five star hotel rating is where all the wealthy drug traffickers and sort of corrupt politicians who have embezzled funds live. <laughs> and then down in the one, two star and zero star sections, the inmates are really poor and they're often addicted to drugs. So they live maybe four or five into one inside one little tiny cell, wow. which they call coffins. It's like Jeez. literally, it's like a little catacomb kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and they were all sort of lying there side by side. And, and did you see, did you get the tour of that? Yeah, area? yeah, yeah. Of everywhere? Yes, yeah, so we did the whole tour. Uh, and this was during the day. And so it was relatively peaceful uh, during the day. And I was just like, this is just, a, this is just a trip, right? There was no, there were girls on the tour. There was no danger. We sat down. We had some lunch with uh, some of the inmates. We looked at all the handicrafts that they were built, that they were uh, making. You know, you buy little trinkets and souvenirs. And I was like, wow, that's, that doesn't seem like a prison at all. It's like a holiday camp. And then mm. Thomas is like, well, at night time is when that's when the danger comes out. Yeah. So he took us back to his cell and he, he got rid of most of the tourists and he, he kept uh, a few of us and he sort of laid out some lines of cocaine. And I was like, you know, coming from law school, I was like, this is entrapment. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And, uh, and he, the door was shut and I was just looking at the door thinking, oh, any second now the uh, – police are going to burst in. Yeah, I'm going to have my own cell. Yeah, yeah. Let me move in is, next door. This is part of a, tr- a trick, right? And um, and Thomas is like, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, do I trust this guy? And the police are going to set me up. He goes, but look, this is the place, this is the safest place in the world to do cocaine. Mm. He goes, what are they going to do if they bust you? Yeah. yeah Put you in prison? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, well, I'm not doing it. You do it. And because, uh, you know, this is my stupid legal mind going, yeah. uh, undercover agents, can't um, take drugs themselves, so make him do it. So, yep. so he does a line of cocaine. Yep. I was like, okay, so this wasn't a trap. And, and this, um, this is party time. Yeah, this is, <laughs> we're on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so then we, I ended up staying there the whole night, and then another night because we woke up quite late the next day. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, I've spent a couple of nights in prison, and I was like, wow, this is just an absolute trip. Someone, you know, someone should write a book about this. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and he's just like, yeah, well, we'll do it. Let's do it. Let's write a book. So Thomas uh, left school when he was relatively young and went went off drug trafficking. Uh, he's moving heroin through India and Pakistan. Um, he was in, yeah, he, he he got taken by. He's got some really interesting stories. He got taken by the Taliban at one stage because they thought he was undercover DEA because <laughs> uh, he couldn't speak. You know, he's he was this black. Is, and this he, is the prequel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because <laughs> he's black and he spoke only English or mainly English. They sort of assumed he was uh, American. Um, so yeah, he's had plenty of stories, um, before he actually started shifting cocaine through South America, but obviously the marching powder concentrated just on his particular drug trafficking ventures in, uh, through Bolivia. Did you have, uh, did you have a, what type of relationship did you have with Tommy? Did you, when obviously for someone to tell their, not their life story, but a yeah. story such as the story of marching powder to entrust that to you, did you actually feel like when you met with Tommy and you sat down, you spent a couple of days with him, you had a real rapport? Like you felt like you were yeah. you really connected? And you, Absolutely. And Look, he's a, he's a genuinely open, friendly guy. So he's friendly with everyone. You know, I'm sure everyone felt a kind of sense of connection with him when they first met him. And look, obviously, you know, we spent two nights drinking and talking and, um, you know, and obviously I, because I've sort of got a curious mind, I spent a lot of time asking him questions and yeah. some things he'd answered and some things he wouldn't. Like, for example, obviously, you know, it took quite a while before 
he said, I said, did you actually, you know, are you guilty? And yeah. he's just like, well, you know, I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah. Right. Mm. So it, it, it t- did take a little while to, to build up the trust. And obviously, you know, after two nights, I was like, great, let's, let's, let's write a book. And I was thinking, look, how long does it take anyone to tell their life story? I mean, we're trying to cover my story here in what, an hour or so. Yeah. Mm. I was like, oh, maybe a week of research. No, but you know, it was like literally four months in there with him gradually telling me more and more and more and getting deeper and deeper into his, into his backstory about his life, how he, where he grew up, <clears throat> what his family life was like, you know, it was, it's, you know, the really, really deeply personal mm. um, issues that, um, you know, that motivate people's psychology and stuff. So I won't say it was instantaneous, but obviously when you're spending time in a small, in a confined space over three or four months mm. um, and, you know, basically, you know, working together on a project, you have to develop a really, really sort of close 100%. bond, close sense of trust as well. Yeah. For sure. Was it, um, yeah, one of the things I really love about Marching Powder is that as you go through reading it, um, you really start to get a bond with Thomas, but every now and then it'll flick over in my mind I'm going, hang on, this guy's a bloody drug dealer. <laughs> is that something just on that relationship you have with him that you kept sort of flicking the switch and going, hang on, I'm, I'm hanging out with a, you know, yeah. pretty dangerous dude. So one of the... Um, you know, I guess one of the, the the questions or dilemmas I had was how do I write this book, dude? If I wrote it as a strictly sort of objective journalistic piece, then I might have my own judgment might have entered into it, like as in, hang on, this guy's a criminal. He's not really repentant at all. <laughs> like he, as he was actually shopping your life. He was actually quite boastful about how good he was as a drug trafficker. Um, You're not that good, mate. That's yeah, right. like, yeah. in prison yeah. That was the irony. He's like, yeah, I'm the best trafficker ever. I'm like, yeah, but you're in prison. Yeah. Uh, um, you never so, said that, though. No, no. So the the question was, do you do you just stick to the hard, cold, dry facts and then risk kind of making it the book a little bit boring? And I decided in the end the best way to do it was to tell the story as he was telling it himself. Yep. I think people relate to that because, you know, obviously you can read between the lines and go, you guy's really charming, he's lovely, but he's obviously also done some pretty horrible stuff. So it sort of allows the uh, reader to make up his or her own mind about what sort of person Thomas is. You know? Yes. So I'm going to give it a reverb here. Is there any way of- so you had, a, you had a good working relationship with Thomas and you, you're talking about, um, obviously writing it from his perspective and he obviously thinks he's maybe more endearing than he is. I don't know. But you have to make an endearing character for readers. It did, is, it a, is it a fair portrayal of him or was, it, was yeah, there more I, to Tommy that, that I, much I darker think it side? Is. Or? No, no, I, I think it is a fair, fair portrayal. And look, obviously it's him telling his own story and each of us have our own narrative about how we see ourselves. And, you know, if, if any one of us were to tell our own life story, obviously we're going to cast ourselves as kind of, the hero, right. or at least not as the bad guy. And, Johnny Depp's playing me for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so oh, I like, should have said. Um, should have said. What's his name? Um, Wolverine. Hugh Jackman. Oh yeah, that's Hugh right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He never gets it. He just thinks he does. I can see that. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, so it was pretty. Yeah, but he was a good guy. Obviously, yeah, he was a good lovely guy. guy. And you know, we're still friends to this day. And we speak. We actually spoke two days ago. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. And he's now had a. He lives. He was born in Tanzania and then grew up in the UK, but he's now back in living in Africa and he had uh, a boy and he named his first son Rusty. Oh no yeah, way! Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. That's yeah, wow, so that's quite a. Who yeah. did he name it after? That, that's that's only, <laughs> the, the only bigger tribute I've had than that is the song from Tommy. You know. From this time, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> we won't go. Which one was better? We, we obviously know. We obviously already know. <laughs> um, well, that's awesome. So we'll go back. We'll, we'll get back into the um, how you, the writing process. So what 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 is Tommy up to now then? Mm. So he's 
off the drugs. He stopped, mm-hmm. never, never went back to trafficking, which is great. Wow. He, after, after leaving the prison in Bolivia, we moved to Colombia, which may not have been the best uh, <laughs> place for someone who was trying to get away from corruption, <laughs> violence yeah. and drugs. But um, we lived there together for a year. Then he went back to the back to London for three or four years, and now he's back in Africa. Already owns a, a chicken farm with two thousand chickens. Wow. wow! And he works in an international hotel as a tourist guide of all things. So, wow! <laughs> so, so you lived with um, you lived with Tommy in Colombia after the book was yeah, released, so, or so. The research component took uh, four months inside San yep. Pedro prison. Then at the end of it, uh, he got out of prison and then we needed somewhere to live. Well, the, basically the book wasn't written. It was just the, the research, all the interviews that we did on on a tape recorder. And this is this is pre-digital, so we all had with these little micro cassettes. Right. I used to, I used to smuggle the micro cassettes out of the prison at, yep. into a safe house and then come back in. I had a, a tape recorder on the inside and one on the outside, so I didn't have to take didn't have to smuggle the recorder each time. Yep. And so I just take the tapes out and then play them on the outside um, and gotcha. transcribe. But the actual writing um, of the book took a year, a year, a year to write and six months to edit. So mm. um, during that time, Thomas is just like, well, you know, you might have some follow-up questions and yeah. I've got no money. And so you're my brother, you're my prison brother. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, we we obviously had developed a very close friendship. So we yeah we lived in Bogota for a whole year. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's a what's the um, what's an interesting story like a personal story about Tommy that we don't know from the book from your travels maybe from your time in Colombia? Oh, just trying to I might have to think about that one. Um, well, what was he getting up to over there, by the way? Like in Colombia, if, if he's not obviously trafficking drugs and he's straight out of prison, how do you make how do you make yeah. ends meet in Colombia? Well, that was one of the things I, I was in huge amounts of debt um, because I yeah I. Taking my two credit cards, and I was kept trying to tell Thomas not to traffic drugs from inside the prison because I thought that was a big risk if he got yeah. if he got busted mm-hmm. we could, and he got, had to stay in the prison. We couldn't, I couldn't ethically release the book, so uh, I was sort of supporting both of us inside the prison using my credit cards, and yeah. then obviously uh, we needed an income. There were teaching jobs available in um, Bogota at the time. There were very few foreigners travelling through Colombia, mm-hmm. and you could earn you know you could earn some decent money as an English teacher there. So we're not there and, um, you know, Thomas, even though he grew up in the UK, he's really got a mixture of accents and he he's not educated. So I was like, how is he going to, even though he's from the UK, how is he going to teach English? So we yeah. actually, we got to job interviews and I, I would fill out the um, the quiz, the questionnaire, like, you know, the, the test, I guess, to get the job. And I would put Thomas McFadden on top of mine. He'd put Rusty Young and <laughs> Rusty Young would end up with, you know, not great grades. Yeah. <laughs> and Thomas McFadden would end up getting the job. So, so, so he ended up as a as an English tutor for um, you know executives in in the corporate world in Colombia. <laughs> That's a classic. Cool. Um, yeah, cool. So, so what does the writing process actually look like? So you you were writing it. In Colombia, you're yeah. putting the actual the, everything together. Was it all written in Colombia? Yeah, it was all written in Colombia, and then I, I came back to Australia, found a, a publisher, and then edited it here in Australia. So, but the, the, the it was written over a year um, in Colombia. We were living together, so basically, I would listen to the tapes, transcribe them, and then write up write it up into kind of a, a vignette or a short story, and then I would read it out to Thomas, and he'd go, "Yeah, except that you got that wrong, or you missed this bit, or yep. I didn't tell you this." And then I'd go back and adjust it. And it was really, uh, really valuable to have, you know, the subject of the book there to correct any, any, any errors 
or add any sort of details that were missing. Yeah, highlight and, the important the importance of some yeah. bits that will that'll follow on down the line. Yeah, and we used to sort of sit in the park and he'd smoke a joint and uh, like I don't I don't like marijuana, it makes me a bit paranoid. But I'll just sit there in the park and read out the the chapters as they were come as I was as I was writing them. Mm-hmm. And it, it was also really valuable just to kind of listen, hear your own voice um, reading it aloud because then you get the kind of the, the 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 rhythm, I guess, the cadence of the story as well, yeah. and, the, and the voice. Um, so that was it. It was def- definitely a sort of a group effort. Um, we did the interviews. I wrote it, transcribed them, wrote them into vignettes. That's the first draft. Read them out to Thomas. He'd correct them. I'd rewrite them. And then eventually I brought them back and sort of really, you know, Marching Powder is just a, st- a collection of short stories, you know, mm. of the, the highlights or the highlights and lowlights of his, yeah. of his time there. And then the, the challenge was then taking all these disparate, stories that occurred during different parts of, uh, of a four or five year period and trying to link them together into a kind of coherent, cohesive yeah. narrative. Mm. So that was the other challenge was because basically the, he, the way he told them, the, told the stories to me were basically as a series of anecdotes. So then you got to try and impose a structure on top of that. Yeah. You got to try and get more out of him, I suppose, and put him into yeah, I mean, readable. Yeah. It's, readable it's more terms. about creating like, I guess a story arc, like, because you know, You've got all these stories that occurred at one might occur in October of the first year. The next one occurs the next June. So how do you link those two those two different anecdotes mm. together? And obviously mm. the key there was was Thomas and his voice and the fact that all these crazy bizarre stories occurred to one man. Yeah. So did you? What was your life like when you were in Columbia at this stage? You you were telling us just earlier. You you so what? You're 24 or five when you were writing. No, so at this stage Columbia? I was two, so 26 at this 26. stage. Yeah, so I was 25 when I was in the prison with Thomas, and yep. then that was and then I turned 26 when I moved to Columbia. Um, yeah, so my job, my my life was getting up in the morning, teaching English to executives at about six o'clock for an hour and a half till seven thirty. Then I'd go back, do some writing. Then at 12 o'clock again, I'd do an hour and a half class and then one more at five o'clock from five to 6.30. So three times a day I was working as an English teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, When my Spanish improved, I got an extra job um, as a translator. So I would translate like newspaper articles or embassy documents at night time and I could really get to choose my own hours then. So basically working to pay the rent and just between times writing, writing, writing. You know, it it was really exciting times because I was following my passion, but we had no idea about writing a book you know, yeah. and as my very first attempt at writing a book and we didn't have a publisher. I didn't know any publishers, didn't know how to get published. So there was a sort of sense of, wow, this is a fun. Um, I hope this pays yeah, off. Yeah, this yeah. pay off. Yeah. <laughs> pay off. Yeah. Yeah. Was a, we're in debt and I was like, you know. Did you think you're onto something though? Did you know that you're like, because you listen to some of the stories, even in anecdotes, you put the 10 best stories throughout the book on a page and you read them individually, you go, fuck it, this is amazing. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Did you think, yeah. I'm, on, I'm really on a winner here? Look, I did say like the very first night, that's probably the impre- same sense of amazement as readers get on their first read through, right? So I'm like, this is amazing. This should be a book. Why hasn't someone written a book? Why hasn't someone done a movie? This is the most incredible place on planet Earth. And then obviously you know, a year and a half later, you're really starting to doubt yourself. You've, mm. you've been over those same stories so many times that they, they lose their, their impact. And I'm yeah. like, by the end, I was just like, you know, why would anyone want to read this book? Why would anyone be interested in prison in South America? Why would I be the person to write it? You, you know, it's a real process of kind of following your passion, trying to inspire yourself to, to keep going, to believe in yourself. And then, and, then, yeah, and then on the flip side, this incredible sort of levels of self-criticism and self-doubt where you're yeah. going, 
shit, uh, I actually got to try and find a publisher now. How do I do that? And are people going to like this book? And, you know, I'd lost a real sense of whether or not the story was actually exciting. Right. And, and I said the same thing about my next book. You know, I've spent basically spent eight years researching it in Colombia. And I think Colombia is one of the most incredible countries I've ever been to. Mm. And I was like, this is just, this is just amazing, some of these stories. Mm. And then obviously many years later, you're writing the same stories, rereading them, mm. editing them, and you go, this is actually quite boring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like we're in the exact same scenario right now. Yeah. <laughs> you said whenever I write a tribute, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> um, so was it hard to stay motivated because were you living the life of a, of a, of a 26-year-old in Colombia? You know what I mean? Were you, were you taking... You taking drugs over there? Was it was the doubt through a little bit of a you look? Know, I was drug being fueled. as responsible as possible. Um, I was waking up, you know, had to get up at, at five thirty to get to a six o'clock class, and you, yeah, you, know, okay. you couldn't be hungover for. Ah. You can't turn up in a one-on-one class stinking of whiskey, right? You're for sitting sure. there with mm. a student who's paying good money to to learn a language, you know. Yeah. Um, How many days a week were those classes? Yeah, so Monday to Friday, Monday. as many classes as yeah, I could so get. You're living a living a full hundred percent hardworking life. Yeah, look, yeah. like it was Monday to Friday. Looks. Yeah. Uh, uh, Colombia is a really exciting country. Uh, there were very few foreigners there. The, there's lots of parties. The, the women are really beautiful. Mm. And oh, Col- most beautiful women in the world. And Colombian, uh, just Colombian people in general are really, really friendly, hospitable, and they were so excited to sort of see uh, foreigners there. So we had, you know, I was working really, really flat out. Uh, I'd go to the gym as well, um, get try and get out of town, just sort of get a, a mental break as, as often as possible, Definitely. but obviously really cheaply getting, you know, public buses, which is sometimes dangerous because there's like eight kidnaps per day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just, a, yeah, it was, it was an exciting time. Um, we, we really, we really didn't have much money. Going back to your question before about um, stories about Thomas and when we were living together, there were three of us in this uh, shared flat and it was pretty tight. Like we, each one of us had our own little uh, shelf on the refrigerator, right? And we'd do common shopping and stuff. And there was a few times when you know, the toilet paper run out. And I was like, well, you know, I got the last roll. And we're, just, we're talking 50 cents. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I was like, I got, <laughs> the last, roll the I got the last two or three rolls. It's your turn. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, I got the last roll. And then eventually, basically, we stopped buying toilet paper. <laughs> we, we stopped buying. Just buy, we out buy, the Well, no, we just, everyone would buy their own toilet roll and keep it in their room. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And then when you go to the bathroom, you take your own toilet roll in. Like, that's, that's, what, that's what it got to, you know. Yeah, like, right. I really didn't have much money. We were sleeping on really thin mattresses on the floor but you know you'd wake up and it'd be like it's, it can be quite cold in Bogota and it's like what on earth am I doing here like so living in mm. relative um, poverty I mean I obviously was never as poor as Colombians and I always had the opportunity if I'd really chosen to to come back and you know yeah. be a lawyer here so I never I don't think I've ever really experienced true poverty but certainly relative to the standard of living in in Australia and Sydney, mm. um, you know, living on the floor on a thin mattress, eating rice and pasta and potatoes and uh, scrimping and saving over toilet paper. Mm. It was a, re- a sort of a daily reminder of like, wh- why it is I'm here? What, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm here to write this book. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, sometimes having less comfortable surroundings can be a source of inspiration, yeah. a reminder of what's important to you. You know, you can be surrounded by, you know, countries like Australia and, um, industrialized nations you, you can you can get fooled into thinking that the important things is living in a nice suburb or having a yeah. nice car yeah. or having the best clothes or going out to the nice restaurants but those things can also be big distractions in terms of following your own passion Absolutely. and so Absolutely. I don't know if I found 
you know, living in a foreign country with a different language, um, not having much money was just, it stripped my life and my sort of sense of purpose in life back to the basics. So I, I never really forgot my purpose. Yeah. There would have great. also been many times though, where you would have, I guess, missed that sort of way of living. I mean, just about, I'm just from hearing it from yourself, being in a place like Colombia, where it's just so different to Australia, you would have had sort of, I'm guessing weeks where it's like, what am I doing? You know, would have been tough. Definitely would have been tough. Yeah. I mean, look, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Probably that was, that was the country where I was following my passion. I finally had the sort of courage to have a go at it. And I, I think even if Marching Powder had never found a publisher in the world, never heard the story, I, I wouldn't have regretted it because at yeah. least I was having a go, you know, if I had sure. to, if I had to go back to being a lawyer, then I would have been disappointed, but at least I had a crack at it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the most uh, important part. You never would have forgive, never would have forgiven yeah. yourself if you had not put pen to paper. I suppose exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I'd probably have uh, you know a house and a white picket fence and two and a quarter children and a Range Rover or something. But yeah. boring shit. <laughs> how, how would you have a quarter children? <laughs> We're we'll um, going to that timeshare. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. So, um, so when you actually so you came back to Sydney. When had the process of getting an editor, um, actually getting the book published? How did that all go about? And when did it? When did you figure out? Oh, I might have a hit on my hands here. Yeah, I was, um, I was really, really lucky. As I said, I, I knew nothing about publishing. I knew no publishers, but um, because they, I was sending out these emails from the prison, they had actually had internet inside the prison. So yeah, this right. guy, the, our next door neighbour, whose name was Barbara Choker, and he had. He was busted with four point two tons of cocaine. His own airplane. <laughs> he's in the book. Isn't he? He's in That's the book. Right, yeah. Right. So he actually, I mean, he had cell phone and he had um, internet as well inside the prison. So I was sending out these uh, sort of draft, very, very rough first drafts and people going, wow, keep going and send, mm. sending on to their mates. And the, imagine you're sitting in an office building as a lawyer in yeah. Melbourne or yeah, Sydney and you're receiving these, you know, this crazy friend of yours <laughs> mail outs going, yes, I'm in prison. And <laughs> I'm just hanging out with this guy with 4.2 tons of cocaine <laughs> and the, and the prison cat called crack cat. And sending, out the, that's crack right, crack cat. sending out these stories and they're getting forwarded on. And they came across the desk of, um, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, um, who's a publicist at Pan Macmillan Australia. And She's like, when you actually come back to Sydney and want to find a publisher, please come and talk to us first. Mm. And so that was my first protocol. In the meantime, I'd sent out um, the draft manuscript to publishers and to agents here in Australia. And I've still got the rejection letters. They, they, like some of the best publishers and, and agents in Australia said, we apologise, but we think this has no market um, in the Australian publishing industry basically uh you know and that's so, interesting yeah well jk rowling got um rejected a fair few times as well didn't she yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Harry Potter. 27 times yeah. or something like that yeah, yeah. I, I didn't get, i mean i didn't get 27 rejections and i was just really lucky to have one publisher in particular that was really really passionate about it um and so, yeah, I'm really, really grateful to them. So they just showed so much enthusiasm. I didn't have to go around looking for another one. I just sort of said yes. And I was really um, you know, blown away by their enthusiasm. And they were so professional and did a really great job of editing and marketing it and explaining to me the whole process it was a real learning process for me. Um, mm. And I, I still think there was a, a degree of luck in, involved there as well yeah, because, sure. you know, what might seem fascinating, what might seem like it's that was an obvious bestseller right when you read it you go yeah that's of course it's an amazing story and then but you know at the point when it wasn't published other people were saying no this has got no mar- no, yeah, yeah, no idea. there's no market really so there's very difficult to know um when you're writing your first book whether or not it's actually going to get published mm, yeah absolutely. absolutely so did so you good. have any did tommy um 
What did, it, did Tommy was Tommy financially involved in, in, in any way in the story? Like, did he profit from the story, or he just wanted to put his story on paper and let his story be told because it was such? Um, a... There are laws against um, people becoming profiting from crime. Profiting from crime. Yes, gotcha. Yeah, that's right. I've really got to stop being a drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you mentioned Crack Cat before. Yeah. Have we touched on Crack Cat yet? Or Not we just- yet, but I, we're going to get into it. <laughs> we're yeah. going to speak about the Crack Cat. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you tell for the listeners? So, so um, Marching Pad. Obviously, we, we've discussed the book. Some of the, there's some amazing characters throughout the book. Absolutely. One of the characters that you come across <laughs> is a cat that's somewhat addicted to Crack Cat, <laughs> yeah. which is actually preluded. You know, the, the the coolest thing that I like about the story, which is a really sort of off remark mm-hmm. little piece of information, is that when we were talking about at the start, what he's walking through the the airport uh, mm-hmm. terminals, and it goes into that little tangent about how the they get all the, the dogs over there addicted to cocaine yeah. and they're super keen to find cocaine. That's, true. That's amazing. Mm. I never knew that. Yeah. I knew that. Yeah. But is, is Crack Cat, like, why don't you tell the story about the way that you're meeting, your first meeting with Crack Cat, and is that <laughs> one of the weirdest things that you saw in the prison or is there more that you, that you, that you could... Ah, uh, look, the, the, the very first night we'd, you know, <laughs> there's two different types of... Um, of cocaine, there's co- cocaine hydrochloride, which is the sort of white crystal powder stuff that uh, it's actually a salt that you you know inhale. Yeah. And then there's a something called cocaine base, which is the stage before the yep. final crystal, and um, it's a lot cheaper, and it's a lot rougher, and if you smoke it, it's really highly addictive. It's a bit like uh, crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. So there was you know the two two different classes of uh, drug takers inside this prison, the sort of four and five star. Um, prisoners who were taking cocaine hydrochloride, and then in the in the poorer sections, they were smoking cocaine base, and that's yeah, it's pretty scary seeing people on 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 cocaine base. They really basically get really really high. They get really agitated. There's one guy that we saw who he he would smoke some, and it become so instantly agitated that he'd then pull out a knife and slash himself across the stomach Ooh. in order to sort of jolt himself out of the agitation and so basically Shit. give himself a, an adrenaline rush. So that was pretty freakish. Wow. Um, and then we went to this other guy's um, room. So sort of part of the tour was Thomas like, do you want to see the base smokers? And at first it sounds like, yeah, yeah I want to see people smoking. I've never seen people smoking yeah. cocaine. Never seen, and mm. it's it's like, kind do, of, you, do you want to see? It's kind of like something you, you think do, you, do you want to really see want and to then see when this? you actually see it, it's really horrific. Like it's, oh, that's, for sure. I, I would never ever touch that, that particular drug. It's wow. just it's scary. Um, and because in the poor sections they have really small cells with no ventilation and you're allowed pets. There's one guy who had a cat and he lived with his cat in this tiny cell but it had no windows, right? So yeah. it's just this concrete, um, tiny concrete room and obviously the, he was smoking base, the cat's in the in the room the whole time. Then I'm talking this guy's oh. smoking crack 24 hours. Yeah. And so you imagine the, the whole room is just permeated with this, yeah, with this, with this toxic, toxic, toxic smoke. Yeah. When I was in there I was like, Actually, can we leave the door open because I don't want to get high oh, from yeah, smoke? No yeah. So this poor cat was obviously it became passively yeah. <laughs> from passive smoking became passively addicted. What a to, fucking unlucky! Just what a what oh, a shit run of that roll of dice, eh? For that. Well, when he's cat. on it, he'd be the luckiest cat. The, 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 cat, the cat was yeah, it was, pretty, it was pretty grumpy when it wasn't high, and then basically yeah. the guy would 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 light up his little pipe and breathe it in. The cat would sort of pick its ears up. Start start climbing up his chest, and then as the guy breathed out the smoke, he'd blow it at the cat, and the cat would just <laughs> breathe it in, Whoa. sneeze, and then it would just start purring. <laughs> That's so Having cool. The time it's life. Yeah. So I love it. Um, what about like um, 
when you were writing the book, were you you're staying on the outside and you were coming in during the day, like you said? You weren't staying no. there for three months or you were no, staying no, I was there? Sta- so I stayed inside the prison in Thomas's room for three months. Oh, really? And then after three months, I got arrested. Um, and then thereafter, I could only go in as a visitor just during the day. So, yeah. so yeah, as I said before, the four months I was there doing the research was mainly about uh, recording the interviews on these micro cassettes and then doing a few really rough drafts to send out to... Uh, via email yep. and then the actual writing I did in Colombia over a year. Yeah. Mm. So did it get That's pretty like, um, did it get pretty saddening for you day to day coming in? I mean, it sounds like you, you talk about the prison, you, you write about the prison how it's so different and it's a very family environment. There's um, obviously it's a male prison, but there's females everywhere because they're living with the inmates. There's mm. children running around, there's greenery, there's trees, there's restaurants, so, so on and so forth. Mm. But did it ever get kind of depressing for the fact that these kids are spending their time with you know dangerous criminals and the stories that you actually hear and you start to start to unravel did it start yeah, to be like de- definitely not just- my, my perception changed over time you know obviously for the first week or so I was like wow this is exciting yeah. you know I'm in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a prison that everyone's doing drugs there's you know who, how many other people have done this during their life, lifetimes you know left a a, a career in law and yeah. left all that behind and come and done something crazy like living in a prison voluntarily. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first week. <laughs> and then very quickly, um, boredom in particular set in, you know. Um, we had free movement. Um, there was no lockdown or anything. But, uh, I had a copy of the key to Thomas's cell so I could just move around the prison as, as I chose. Um, but, yeah, you pretty quickly realised that even though it's it's a very liberal um prison model it's still a prison you're still stuck in there and the inmates basically that i think their main problem is is boredom and unfortunately when people get bored they start looking for excitement and they turn often turn to drugs you know yeah and uh yeah that was yeah not so much not so much not so much i mean violence was there when people owed money for drug debts or um there were a few little prison gangs and stuff Mm because basically you have to make your own money inside the prison The, the state doesn't pay for anything you have to pay for your own clothes yeah they do give um, soup once a day, but it's really watered down soup because all the money gets stolen. So basically you have to buy your own food, cook your own food. You have to buy your That's own prison cell. Insane, and so <laughs> you can imagine that kind of quite, people are quite desperate for money inside there. So wherever there, wherever there are pockets of um, wealth, you know, there's fierce competition and Absolutely. potential violence. So. That's true, obviously, for the tours. There was always quite a stiff competition for the tours and also for the drug market. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, if you were a hardworking person with a, with your own trade, for example, there was a guy who was a doctor in there who was in there for stabbing his wife 53 times, <laughs> but he can, you know, he continued to, to be a doctor yeah. to the inmates and he could pres- oh, prescribe yes. antibiotics yes. and stuff. You, it's not someone you go to for an injection, but... You, you, know, <laughs> you know what, though? I don't think that actually... Look, I may be totally, totally wrong here because I'm not a psychologist. I don't, know, I don't know how this would affect the inmates, but sure. it actually having like a... Uh, societal structure where you have you have to make an income you have to buy real estate you have you know you have can't be detrimental is that what you're saying it's probably not a bad thing because you know how so many inmates in prisons that don't work like san pedro they come out and they have no no grasp on reality and Mm. you know social structure and so forth so even though it's so weird and so wacky and so strange who knows it might yeah for the people actually trying to read this was the argument this was the argument that you know this is the argument the government was making that it was, you know, essentially th- their aim was to not break prisoners' bonds with society. So basically the oh. prison was in the middle of a, the major city there, La Paz. Mm-hmm. Um, it allowed family members to come in, to stay the night. The, so they didn't 
you know, the wives and the girlfriends didn't typically abandon their husbands. Whereas, let's say, if you get a, a five to ten year sentence in Australia and you got it's limited limited visiting hours, mm. do you think do you think uh, you know women and children are going to stand by you for all that time? Yeah. Well, that, if you're lucky, they will. But in most cases, I imagine it put a huge strain on a relationship. And so, when inmates come out, they've got nothing to go back to. They've got no yeah. job to go back to. They've got no family to go back to. And that can cause massive levels of you know resentment and repeat offences. Repeat offences. So. Yeah. So this particular model was, you know, it was it was quite progressive in some ways in that mm. the inmates' bonds with society weren't destroyed. They were able to have, to live with some sort of um, independence, yeah. some sort of dignity, have you know, exercise a profession or a trade or a craft from within inside the prison. You know, that was the explanation. That was the official explanation the government gave. I mean, the unofficial explanation is that there was just no money or the money yeah. had been stolen. So That's basically right. it was thing, just, yeah. it was, you know, it, the system actually evolved out of sheer necessity basically yeah. it's like yeah you're in prison we've got no money for uniforms or for food so we're going to let you do whatever you want <laughs> and the reason we've done this for you is <laughs> so that you <laughs> yeah, that's right, we're trying to help you guys yeah. hey um hey what, what are, yeah <laughs> hey considering why you're here <laughs> oh, hey rusty um what were the what were the did you have any sort of different reactions um that the inmates gave you I know you were you're a tourist there, and they had many tourists um, coming in, but you were there for so long. Did people did people start to react to you differently? Yeah, obviously. Um, you know, at first, at first, uh, Thomas got permission saying that I was his cousin, which is pretty <laughs> pretty unlikely because he's black and I'm this white. Is black, this is my black dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we claimed that I was married to one of his you know, distant cousins, and that that yeah, kind you of you can make it work. You, you can make that work for plus a couple extra Bolivianos to make yeah, that work. That's right. For a hundred bucks, people will believe anything. This dog is my this dog dog is my brother-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so look at, at, at first that was the claim and then the next claim was obviously when Thomas started going to court because he actually had – he was up on, on further drug charges. Um, I bought a suit and tie and I'd go to court with him as well. So I started coming into the prison with Thomas and he was in handcuffs acting as though I was his international huma, um, humana, humanitarian law, <laughs> lawyer. Sorry, excuse me. Acting as if I was his international humanitarian lawyer and um, human rights lawyer and – and yeah, so we had sort of very various different sort of um, subterfuges going on. Wow. But after a while, it was like, okay, so this guy's not in here to get high like all the other backpackers. Yeah. Uh, what are they doing in that room the whole time? And people, yeah, would come, going on. people would come and knock on the door and we have to obviously turn the tape recorder off, hide the tapes and stuff. And so people are just like, so what are you guys doing in here talking every day for five hours a so day? I didn't think you were like a, a um, behind the scenes couple. <laughs> no, it's in all seriousness though. No, that, no, because Th- Thomas, Thomas had girls coming in yeah, right. as well. But do they think you're undercover potentially? Or? Well, so after three months, you know, of sneaking these um, micro cassettes in and out of the prison, I finally got arrested on the way out, on the way in actually. And um, so I used to bribe the, the guards, just you basically fold up a, a, a say a 20 Boliviano bill, so what's it like two or three bucks, mm-hmm. just fold it up, put it between your fingers and then shake hands and they'd just take the money and no one would yeah. see it. Mm. And then they like, uh, you know, w- what's this? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> money, <laughs> like the same sort of bribe. And yeah. so I think they, they really did, the, the guards and the other prisoners started to get suspicious about what it is that we were doing yeah, okay. uh, with these micro cassettes. And um, yeah, I got, I had been 
three days before I was bribing this guy, I actually got, they did a proper search. They found these cassettes down my underwear and they're like, what's this? And they didn't have any means of playing it. But that was the point where we're just like, okay, we're playing with fire here because if they do, if they do get a hold of this and work out what we're doing, we could be in big trouble. Yeah. The main thing that saved us obviously was they didn't have their tape recorded to play it and they didn't speak English. So we're conducting our interviews in English, but you know, it, there was another guy inside the prison called Samir who was one of Thomas's friends who was pretty crazy and the police used to take him outside uh, out of the prison at 2am to rob cars right because mm. he was a really good car thief and they'd go and steal four or five cars then put him back in the prison and give him a wow. hundred bucks per car oh, <laughs> and eventually they didn't they stopped paying him like I said the cops owed him money and he's like right that's it I'm going to write to the to the parliament and so he started writing letters to the parliament saying this is what these cops are doing and then they found him hanging in his cell with obvious oh signs of torture God, wow. that so that was the point where I was like oh wow you know this has been a bit of a fun game for me yeah. and obviously if something big did go down then I could just get in a plane leave the country and go that's it I'm not doing that book but for Thomas that was his life and you know he was the one who was stuck in there and he was like mate you need to take you need to take this really really seriously yeah of course and do not get to make sure you hide those tapes really well make sure you do not open them out do not be seen record don't, don't go around interviewing other inmates until the very end so basically yep. You know, the first few months was just interviewing Thomas and it was only at the end when we knew he was going to get out that I would then start trying to cross-check the facts of his story with other inmates because if I'd walked around uh, all the other sections with a tape recorder in hand asking questions about cocaine laboratories and, and police corruption, mm. you can imagine that the that word would have travelled pretty quickly back to the guards and they would yeah. have, something could have happened. And what about um, the same sort of deal when the book was actually being published? Um I mean, there's so much stuff in there, like you just mentioned, about the actual corruption of the place. Did you ever get any, any sort of sort of communication from back there that uh, people weren't happy? Yeah, so we, bef- between finding a publisher and getting the advance for the book and the book actually coming out, I was like, I actually really want to record this like on video because... I was just, I was actually, cons- I was actually scared. No one was actually going to believe me. So yeah. we went back in there with a, f- uh, a good friend of mine called Niels Van Ipperen, who's a Dutch photographer. And we just shot some sort of commando documentary f- uh, footage inside there. And we put that together uh, with Australian ABC with a program called Foreign Correspondent. And basically sort of, I guess, documented and, and, and proved pretty much all the claims I made in the book. Shit. Um, and the, You're obviously, a real gangster. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously the... No way are you doing this shit. The, 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 the Bolivia, so when we were in Bolivia, we sort of, we tricked our way into the prison. We had to bribe the guards to get the cameras inside. And then as we were filming, the police came to our hotel and said, mm-hmm. hand over the tapes. We know what you're doing. And we had to just leave the country. So basically you had to sort of pretty much go, yeah, we'll hand the tapes over. We'll just start, we'll make you some copies. Come back, you know, come back tomorrow and we'll give you the tapes. And then of course, as a journalist, you can't, you can't uh, reveal your sources or you can't mm. give your sources away. You know, you lose all credibility and you can put them in danger. So we just... We just skedaddled straight to the airport and, um, yeah, that was a pretty scary moment. Well, and shit, look, the government's insane. always denied all these claims about buying, having to buy prison cells, about the tours and so on. But ever since then, there's been, and particularly with the internet now, there's lots of uh, virtual tours you can do on YouTube of particularly Australians going over there and doing, <laughs> yeah. doing drugs in the prison, going on the tour and just put, yeah. posting it on YouTube. And so 
you know, the government's always said this is all that, that books are lie, it's not true. And then it's <laughs> despite just, irrefutable it's, evidence, yeah, it's pretty yeah. irrefutable evidence I mean, out there. Bolivia, it's Bolivia, They'd, yeah, that's know, right. The Bolivian government just do what they want, and who's gonna who's gonna crack down? It's the Bolivian government yeah, that runs the, the prison stuff, the, show. the prison. The, I mean. the surprising thing for me was that the local press hadn't really done a big expose on it ever. And obviously, when this book came out, then they became more interested in it. And one Saturday night. Uh, I think it was about 7.30 at night, they set up a sort of false raid and they set up a, the news channel, set up a camera just outside the side entrance and yeah. then they, they called a raid through the main entrance. Then they filmed 70 tourists running out yeah. at 9.30 on a Saturday night, running out high on cocaine. <laughs> and they're like, okay, so what were all these 70 tourists doing inside the prison on a Saturday night? Like, were they, were they just visiting? Really? Well, that's... Um I They're think all family now, and friends. <laughs> I think now, um, period- periodically, they do a crackdown. Yeah. Because when I was over there, which was 2011, early mm-hmm. 2011, I mm. went there and only about a week before I got there, there'd been um, a group of 12 and a group of 14 that had been um, d- deported. deported out of yeah. Bolivia because of being in the prison. And then, so we got there and I tried to get in. I lost some money from somebody just being a shyster. I had to pay him, then meet him the next day or whatever. We actually, I was telling Tommy, we saw the chick who took our money. That was like a, you know, equivalent of a hundred Australian dollars. It was pretty, it was a lot of money, yeah. but we we're like, this is our only chance. We, we got to trust this chick. And she ended up, um, I saw her out the, out the front of the prison. She'd ripped us off one day and I went back there the next day and she was there. And uh, I said, hey, you owe me some money. And then she said something really snappy to me in Spanish with a real mean look on her face. And then I looked around. This was in the park out the front of the prison. And I looked around and I could see all these big, heavy-looking Bolivian dudes. And she kind of – I knew that she knew every one of them. And she just kind (laughs) of walked past us. And I said to my mate, Matt, I said, what do we do, man? He goes, let it go. Let her go. (laughs) Definitely let her go. (laughs) But so for us, when I was over there, there was a month long – crackdown so they it uh, was basically for the month no you can't do it anymore you can't get in the prison and then as soon as i left bolivia because we hung around i was out the front loitering on the phone to um, guys on the inside who just kept trying to sell me coke um <laughs> through their through their their kid their kid was um coming up to me and, and yeah you, to, you mentioned that That's yeah, right. they were selling coke through the prison um gates with their, uh, their child uh, and then yeah i left and then um, a couple but, of days after I left, my mate Simon got in there. They mm-hmm. opened it up and he did the tour. Yeah, did the San Pedro prison tour or whatever. So I think it, they just, they're still doing the, the, the you know, three monthly crackdown but and yeah, making examples of people. Is it a crackdown in quotation marks <laughs> or is it a crackdown? <laughs> Let's be honest here. Yeah, oh, or is it a crackdown? Or is it a crackdown? <laughs> Everyone's just still a crack. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a sign out just outside saying uh, no foreign visitors allowed for tourist purposes, which to my mind is almost an admission that that used to be the yeah. case officially, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for, for, I think what they do is they they say that it's illegal but then people get in unofficially, then it grows, and then there's a and then there's a bust, and then they can't yeah. do it. Mm. So, but it's, it, it's there's still tourism in San Pedro, definitely. Yeah, for mm. sure. Mm. So, I want to get on to your next book um, shortly, but like, let's just finish off with the um, with the, the marching powder movie. What's the status of it? Because it, for me, I've been so excited for it for so long, and there's always been these rumours. And then, is it is it official? You sold the rights? Like, yeah. So we sold on? what's called the option. So basically. That gives them the right, but not the obligation to make the film. So yep. it's typically a year or 18 month option. And at the end of that period, the rights come back to the author being me. Okay. So we did sell it at one stage to a company called Plan B, which was, which was owned by Brad Pitt. Yep. And they had the actor Don Cheadle uh, listed to play Thomas. Uh, you good, Tommy. That, yeah. did, that didn't. Tommy. Uh, that didn't. That didn't go through. And then at the moment, the 
the rights with a studio called New Regency, which is one of the big Hollywood studios, and the actor Chiwetel Ejiofor, who's I think he's Nigerian-born English actor who was in 12 Years a Slave. The fantastic Really amazing actor. actor. Oh. Yeah, he was in quite a few amazing movies, uh, including uh, Dirty Pretty Things was one of his big breakouts. I think he's in, uh, is he in The Martian too? He's in The Martian. Well, how do we spell his first name? I'm just trying to look him up here. Chiwetel, C-H-I-W-E-T-E-L. I hope oh, I'm there pronouncing he is. It. Oh, the, oh, man. Yeah, he's he's I love this guy. Yeah, he's, he's great, isn't he? Yeah, he's Oscar-nominated actor. He's really talented. So, yeah. yeah. So he's really – and he he would make an amazing Thomas. Yeah, you know, right. Yep. Um, so that's where it's at. Uh, you know, fingers crossed it gets made. What, oh, man. That would be insane. It's a bit of a leap of faith when you sell your movie rights to Hollywood. It sounds great. You know, like, wow, I've sold the movie rights, but – Screw it up. Sometimes it can take, you know, I mean, it can yeah. just taken 15 years and it yeah, still hasn't right. been made. So. Sure. And it's the same with, um, I was talking to you earlier about Shantaram, um, your book and Shantaram, two of my all-time favourite books. And the rights to Shantaram have been sold and mm. rumours floated around left, right and centre and that's just never been made. It's just, yeah. And then sometimes a, a book will get made and it'll come out and the movie's just really subpar and you're yeah, like, oh, fuck, exactly all that right. time. Like yeah. The Iceman, The Iceman, a gangster movie, a yeah. better uh, Poly, I've just Poly Poly that, it's a great book mm. Polish Shipman in the New York in the fi- um, that did all the hits for the five families through right. like the 80s and 90s it's a great book mm-hmm. one of my favourite books and it got made into like a C grade movie and mm. it broke my heart yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, fingers crossed here yeah hopefully hopefully it goes ahead so have you got any yeah I've got good, some good bad science yes. Tommy yeah so one of our segments here on the show Russ is um, we do the good the bad the science so um, some current affairs stuff something good something not so good and then something sciencey because Bill and I uh, love our science but we're not overly smart so <laughs> hopefully you can help us out here <laughs> alright the good strange things people try to make I uh, try to take on aeroplanes clearly I've uh, practiced this one um, okay so let's have a listen last week American security guards collected a record of 67 firearms from carry-on bags across the US 56 of those guns were loaded they also found a bunch of throwing stars 19 stun guns and tasers and a canister of gunpowder so uh, pretty bizarre it actually may come to a surprise to Australians but the TSA says you can travel with your firearms in checked baggage uh, but they first must be declared uh, on the airline now I wanted to ask you guys um, what the craziest item you guys have ever tried to smuggle or just <laughs> thought it was appropriate to, to, to travel um, on an airplane I was telling Bill before that I I um I went away to uh to the US just the end of the of last year and um I get pretty stinky. So <laughs> I brought with myself five deodorant cans right. and um they sort of looked at me and they're like, You can't be serious, can you? <laughs> like, oh what's the go here? And I was like it's like how am I gonna I'm gonna be stinky for the next six months, that's all right. <laughs> Have you uh, any taken a gun or a sword, mate? No, I don't own any guns or swords, yeah. but uh probably the thing that I got stopped with was uh travelling out of the US back to Colombia and uh, one of my uh, friends and bosses and the uh, work at my job at the time gave me a bottle of uh, Grange Hermitage mm. and I just I just wasn't thinking at the time and I just took it in my carry-on rather than checking oh, it in yeah. right. and I got there and they just took it out and said sorry sorry this has to go and he's, <laughs> oh. he's holding this bottle of Grange Hermitage above a rubbish bin and I'm oh. like no yeah. he's like sir you're gonna miss your flight and I'm just like I was just trying to think, how much did that flight cost yeah. versus how much How much is this bottle? And it was only seven in the morning. I was like, no, give me that bottle back. Yeah. I'm, I'm coming back to the- <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm like, I think I'll miss the flight. And um, I was pretty lucky in that it was a Colombian um, a Colombian airline and I sort of made friends with the, the check-in staff and said, hey, can you get this? I'm sorry, this is what's happened. Can you take this onto the plane? This is worth a lot of money. This yeah. Is, yeah. So, 
Because the other option was, you know, drink a skull bottle of, yeah. oh, skull bottle of Grange Hermitage at yeah. 7 in the morning. Yeah. Real classy. Yeah. Yeah. Really classy. But, um, yeah, I wasn't going to let it get chucked in the no. bin either, so. so you, dad, you got uh, to drink it in the end? <laughs> yeah, it was oh, really good. good. I kept it with me and uh, it was a really nice bottle. <laughs> my dad uh, tried to bring up, when you talked about this earlier, I didn't have anything, but my dad um, tried to get a crossbow in from Indonesia to Australia <laughs> and uh, he put it, took, took it apart and put it in pieces and we got taken through customs and my dad wasn't even freaking out. They opened up his bag and they said, what's this, sir? Mm. And he goes, oh, no, it's just a, it's just a crossbow. It's just for ornament, ornamental sake. Yeah. And they looked at him and said, sir, this is a deadly weapon. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> you, right. you haven't, you, haven't, uh, you haven't declared it. And dad was like, oh. And then so we just got right, rifled through absolutely everything. Yeah, absolutely. Customs. Pretty stupid, pretty yeah. stupid move. So what did he actually want? He just wanted for an ornament. Yeah, just hanging on the wall. Okay, I like that. <laughs> what do you got? Alrighty. The bad. The man who cut off his ears to look like a parrot. <laughs> a man who had his face and eyeballs tattooed to look like his pet parrots has gone a step further by cutting off his ears. <laughs> Englishman Ted Richards. They should make a movie about this one. Englishman Ted Richards, who's 56, is obsessed by pet carrots. Eli, Takea, Tinmi, Jake and Bubby and has his face tattooed with colourful feathers. But the animal nut, who has 110 tattoos, 50 piercings and a split tongue, has taken this obsession one step further and has had both his ears removed and is planning to find a surgeon prepared to turn his nose into a beak. Now, uh, this is probably to the nth degree, but if you guys could be any animal, what would you be and why? Uh, That's a tough one. That's bizarre, isn't it? I'd be an eagle. I'd I'd, be an eagle. I've always wanted to be an eagle. Yep. Dad was an eagle. Uh, Mum was an eagle. (laughs) I came out weird, but uh, I've always wanted to fly. Yeah, it'd be reckon, pretty cool to fly. I reckon cats have got it pretty easy, you know? They sort of just turn up for meal times and yeah. they often sleep. Smoke a shit ton of crack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking the big cat. I'd definitely go the lion. The lion? Yeah, yeah just yeah. walk around with a massive ego. Wouldn't fuck with anyone because I'm pretty pretty happy-go-lucky guy, oh, but just, just know that, you know, if I wanted to, which I can't at the moment, yeah. totally given to me right now, yeah, I could just fuck with anyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is going to go on to our, uh, our next topic in the science, but they actually think that the Sphinx was a line that was made about 10,500 years ago because if you have a look at the Sphinx, I think I touched on this in the next segment, um, but the Sphinx, the, the actual Sphinx head of the pharaoh who they made it after um, is so much smaller than the actual size of the Sphinx and that mm-hmm. actually sort of coincides to this line shape that um, mm-hmm. could have could definitely have been um, what it was. Anyway, the science. So the Great Pyramids of Giza contain enough stone to make an almost two-foot high wall around the earth. So... That is a fact, guys. I've been doing a bit of... This isn't actually a, uh, a, um, a news story. This is just something I wanted to throw in there. Mm-hmm. I remember when I called you a couple of weeks ago, Bill, um, just saying that I, I had basically spent a day... I spent half the day reading Marching Powder and the other half the day um, studying Graham Hancock stuff, which is... A, I'm a big fan of Graham Hancock. He's just an unconventional scientist and theorist. So mm-hmm. this is going off this. Um, so turns out that the pyramids of Giza aren't as young as we all have uh, been taught, or what I believe anyway. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that the pyramids were built somewhere around 10,500 BC, approximately 8,000 years earlier than what is preconceived. Mm. So there are some, some bits of information that I've got here, guys. The, uh, the first one is that the three pyramids of, pyramids of Giza line up perfectly and accurately um, with the constellation of Orion. Mm-hmm. That was apparent around 13,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the mathematics of the constructions are almost beyond current technology. And a further argument suggesting that they're not all that they appear is that despite popular belief and that these were tombs, no tomb has ever been found. Um, now, there's a lot of theories about uh, about how they came to be, aliens, you know, all that sort of stuff. I like the aliens, man. I think that's pretty <laughs> bloody cool. What do you guys think? Bill, do you have a thought on this? 
Um, I don't have a particular thought on how, who the built theory. the pyramids or, yes. or why they were built, but I will say that I think Graham Hancock has a lot of um, theories that there was a cataclysmic event 12,000 years ago, Rusty, that wiped out civilizations that were much more advanced than we believe. Right. This, is, this is his theory, right? Mm. Um, and I think that the fact that the pyramids were built to such an extent at the time that they were built, whether it was 4,000 years ago, whether it was 12,000 years ago, I think whoever built the pyramids were a lot more further advanced mm. than we probably give them credit for. Amazing I mean, astro- astronomers and, mm. and mathematicians. Yeah, and isn't there that stat that if the if the pyramids are half an inch out on That's one right. block at you know at yep. the at the base of the pyramid, then the pyramids are never going to get built. They're built with such you know precision, uh, fifty-two degrees mm. around the base, and they had a perfect understanding of pi as well. All this right. sort of stuff. It's mm. Amazing. I've been understanding of pi, but I don't think it's the same one. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been to those pyramids, so I still think that there are. Yeah, I think I definitely remember seeing some sarcophagi inside. I think there was Tutankhamun's. Uh, yeah, oh, like right. so. Okay. I, 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 I still believe the traditional, yeah, yeah. traditional theories God, behind the, the, yeah, the behind the pyramids <laughs> that they're actual actually were used as tombs. You've yes. actually been inside the pyramids and you see the the um, you know the burial rooms and so on. That's but, a fair good bit of evidence. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. But but one thing that, that we're tri- just going off news articles on the uh, on the web on the web. Well, I got this from Reddit. <laughs> one one thing that definitely tripped me out in South America. This is uh, about ancient civilizations. There's this place called the Nazca Lines, and it's in um it's in Peru, mm. and it's basically out in the desert. And there are these uh, incredible um, sketches done in the desert that are kilometres long. I think the biggest ones might be four kilometres long. So when you when you're right down there on ground level, you can't actually see it. Just looks like a kind of a, you know like a little small trench, I guess. Yeah. But if you get up in the air, um, you can see these animals. Like there's a hummingbird. There's all these sort of strange, um, just strange geometrical shapes. Yeah drawn in the desert so who who did them and mm. why and obviously at the time they didn't have planes when that's were, the most imp- important so, that's like, the thing yeah, yeah so they didn't have planes at the time so who were they doing them for were they were they were they um were they venerating the stars were they writing messages to aliens mm, and yeah. i tell you what there's all sorts of different theories but it's pretty hard to explain it when you see these things from the air like you go how the hell and why did they do this? It's that was quite trippy. Yeah, there's a I, lot of stuff like that that um, may coincide with um, this theory that you know we were quite advanced um, before this cataclysmic event. There's um, there's a, if you go sort of I think it's Central America. Um, wait, where are the mines? Are they south? They're south. My, mines. Mines. Mines are Central America. Mines yeah. are Central America. Yeah, Central America. Um, I'm pretty sure, and I'd have to, to study up again to sound a little bit more professional than I do now. But uh, there <laughs> are these pseudo science, yeah, pseudo science. This is why we have this in here. <laughs> um, there are these there are these sketches, um, and so you know, obviously the Mayans, ancient civilizations, all this sort of stuff. If we're going with the fact that Christopher Columbus discovered uh, the continent of America, and when he did, um, you know, these guys lived thousands of years before he was around, and there are these sketches of um, of, of big big sort of mind faces and. You know, amongst all the rubble, there are these Caucasian sketches and, do, you know, white dudes with big beards and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, well, Caucasians were never there before Christopher Columbus discovered the continent. So what's going on here? Uh-huh. There's tons of stuff like that where I want to know. Well, <laughs> Christopher Columbus took over the continent, I suppose. So when was it discovered? What's that? Well, the, how many people failed in doing that? Arrived, arrived to land and then, you know, got then, wiped out by the natives. Yeah, you know, well, that's, that's right. Yeah. But yeah, well... Excellent. Good stuff. 
Good stuff. The Nesca lines, actually, when I was in Peru, um, we had three of us and two of us, myself and my mate was, were absolutely 100%. One of the most exciting things I was going to do on my whole South America trip. And then there was another mate, Roisy, who I mentioned before. Um, he went to get in the prison with me and we couldn't all fit on the one flight. So Roisy, because he was, me and Wazza kind of bigger than Roisy. Roisy, his weight fit better in the plane before. So he got in the plane before and it was starting to get a little bit windy and choppy and stuff. He didn't want it. He was like, ah, oh, yes, yeah, you're right, whatever. A few lines in the ground. <laughs> anyway, he went and did the flight. He came back and he was like, oh my God, that was amazing. Yeah. Me and Woz, check ourselves in, walk over to the flight. We sit in the plane and then I hear, um, Cancelled. Yeah, yeah. Um, esta, esta, I, can't, I can't do flight in Spanish. Este but it, vuelo está cancelado. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we heard that and I kind of, because I can speak a little bit of Spanish, but I could basically make out what was going on and Was looked at me. We're sitting in our seats. Was looked at me and goes, what's going on, man? No. I said, it's done. No good. It's done. <laughs> el, 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 el aeropuerto es um, cerrado. 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 Yeah, the airport is closed. That, so is, correct. that is correct, by the way. I was, uh, that is how you say it. Gosh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so Rusty, so your next book's Colombiano. Um, what, f- firstly, when you moved to write the book to Colombia, why did you choose Colombia above other nations? Bas- basically, t- um, you know, I bribed Thomas out of prison at the end of Marching Powder. Um, he, the, the, brought, the judges kept his passport yep. so that he, he basically couldn't leave the continent. Mm-hmm. So we needed to go somewhere that wasn't Bolivia because we had to sort of skedaddle out of, yeah. out of Bolivia mm. and we needed to go somewhere we could work. And I had heard that, uh, there was work available as, as an English teacher in, in Bogota. So that was where we went to. Okay. So it was cool. basically economic necessity and yep. ended up going there and absolutely loving the place. Yeah. Just my favourite country in the world apart from Australia. Yeah, it's an amazing Definitely. country. I didn't get to Bogota. I went to Medellin and um, and Cartagena, but Medellin's mm. top notch. I love, love that place. But um, so, all right, well, let's let's talk about your next book, Colombiano. Give us, obviously, you've given us a copy, but we uh, we haven't, obviously, we, we received it today, so we haven't had a chance to read it. Why don't you tell us the, the premise and a little bit about it and what made you write it? Yeah, so I lived in Colombia for seven or eight years. Um, the first year of which I was writing, writing Marching Powder and I just loved it so much I ended up staying there and I was like I want to write my next book about this country yep. I certainly didn't think it was going to take this long to, to write another book yeah. the first one took one year to write and six <laughs> months to edit this one's taken about eight years <laughs> yes. but um, eight times better book we don't know the jury's the jury's not in yet um, yeah so I just started interviewing people you know obviously Columbia was a, a relatively dangerous country at the time uh, had one of the highest murder rates uh, in on the planet 30,000 people per year in a country yep. of 40 million yep there were eight kidnaps on average per day yeah um, three million internally displaced people and the largest standing um, insurgency army in the western hemisphere so the far right. communist guerrilla had they believe between 17 and 20,000 troops and uh, obviously major centre for drug trafficking for mm. one of the, probably 80% of the world's cocaine comes out of Colombia. So Sounds pretty there, was plenty of, <laughs> there was plenty of sort of interesting stories to be told um, in Colombia. And so I started interviewing just people about trying to understand what the war was about, what, what had started it. And it, Colombia also, everyone's heard about child soldiers in Africa, but Colombia is the country with the second uh, second highest number of child soldiers in the world. Really? So that became the kind of the focus of my next book was interviewing child soldiers from the two or three armed groups there, um, either 
active child soldiers or former child soldiers about their, their lives, why they joined up, what their experiences were like inside these um, terrorist organisations and how they were adjusting to life on the outside. So I ended up sort of um, interviewing dozens of them. I also interviewed um, undercover police officers. I interviewed um, people who had been kidnapped, their families, um, soldiers, and just trying to get sort of a picture of what was going on in Colombia, like why the, why there was a war on and what what it was all about. And mm. so the next the next book, Colombiano, is basically telling the story of a guy called Pedro who witnesses his father's brutal execution and then he goes off and joins um, a terrorist organisation in order to get revenge against the, his father's killers and track them down one by one. So it's officially it's fiction, but yep. but the research was so detailed that I think people get a, a sense, as with Marching Powder, of you know the the, the setting and the characters and the and the events of, uh, feel very real. Yeah. Did you have um, any direct experiences with these dangers yourself? Um, look, obviously, going out into the field um, to interview people, going into war zones mm. and stuff, uh, you know, can be pretty dangerous. Absolutely. Um, I was pretty lucky to have just missed a bomb went off in the street in, in Bogota. I was about 15 metres away. It wasn't a big bomb, but it you know, perforated my eardrums and Jesus. stuff. So, wow. And 15 so, metres away from any bomb's going to scare the panther off yeah, the Yeah, yeah. Like I was in shock and just, yeah, eardrums got blown and stuff. So, you know, <clears throat> there were bombs going off all the time. Um, and so, so people getting killed, people getting kidnapped. And so, you know, dangers... I don't want to exaggerate it. Colombia is a great country. Mm. They've just, in fact, just yesterday they announced a peace accord. So it's a very different country to travel to now than it was 15 years ago when I first went there, um, at which point it was considered the world's most dangerous country in the world. So, um, yeah, I, I really, really loved it. But there were definitely going around asking questions of drug traffickers and you know, leaders of terrorist organisations is mm. a bit of a dangerous enterprise. Yeah. So sure. what do you... This is 2000, basically. 2001. 2000, 2001. So um, my memory just evades me. When was Pablo Escobar at a, a reigning uh, Escobar, terror over Colombia? Es- Escobar, was, uh, Escobar was in the 80s and he was killed in 1994. 1994, okay. So six mm. or seven years after yeah. after the Medellin cartel was. Yeah, so so what was the war going on in Colombia? What was, what was the reason behind so much war and so much Okay, terror? so... Well, I mean, there's been a long history of, of violence. In fact, there was a whole period of Colombian history called La Violencia. But around 1964, 1965, when communism was still considered to be a viable um, you know, alternative political system, uh, the Colombian FARC arose out of the, out of the peasant classes and basically formed um, peasant militias and then they united into a, a communist insurgency aiming to overthrow the central government. That war c- continued on as a kind of low-intensity war um, until the early 90s, um, at which point cocaine trafficking really allowed them to increase their, their levels of funding and as, along with kidnapping. So um, tax, the taxation of cocaine, kidnapping and extortion were their primary sources of funding and that yep. allowed them to, to import more weapons, buy more bullets and recruit more soldiers. And that was really the point where the, mm. where the war ramped up and obviously with the dismantling of the Medellin cartel and then the extradition of the leaders of the Cali cartel, you had a huge power vacuum because yeah. it's huge. The demand for cocaine hadn't shifted at all. In fact, it was increasing on a worldwide level. Mm-hmm. And so the, the supply side, who was going to take it over? So 
at that point you have the rise of two um, major terrorist organisations who are listed on the US government's FTO list, Foreign Terrorist Organisation, mm-hmm. and they were amongst the three wealthiest terrorist organisations at the time, <sighs> along with the Taliban, who's funded by, primarily funded through um, poppy uh, plantations. So yep. the FARC and the Colombian Alta Defences were basically making millions and millions of dollars from taxing cocaine or manufacturing mm-hmm. it directly themselves. So they were really the, I guess, what what came in place or what came after the Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's true. So, so how did you, after interviewing all these different characters and, and trying to find um, the root of why all this, this stuff was going on, why did you settle on um, Pedro to tell his story? Yeah, I mean, I just, I interviewed... Well, scores of people around the country but all from different parts of the country so the difficulty for me was then how do I tell this again all these little small anecdotes from different parts of the country different people different ages different social groups and put into one story Um, and I decided just to focus on one of the stories Mm -hmm. and then used all the other ones kind of weave them into a narrative um, into a fictional narrative so I think the most appealing stories for me are first first person narrative stories mm-hmm. and I really wanted to tell uh, you know it's pretty hard to tell the story of a country uh, without being sort of too historical and dry yeah. and boring so yeah. I think it's it's best to tell the story loosely of a country but through the eyes of an individual through telling the, the telling of one person's life so it basically takes his life from uh, you know a fairly idyllic um, country kid who's growing up on a farm and hard working he's got his future ahead of him and then mm. that's all taken from him and then he ends up joining the war and how that radically changes his life and the life of his family members and the life of his town mm-hmm. makes it a lot more real doesn't it, it really yeah puts you in the in the backyard yeah i mean you know i can quote obviously uh, part of the research i did uh, i've got a lot of you know a lot of uh, statistics and figures and historical facts that i could put into a book but when you start talking about three million internally displaced people when you start yeah. lots of zeros people switch off and start going what what's the meaning of three million people it's yeah. pretty hard to How imagine does it affect one person that's yeah, right. it's, 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 it's hard enough to to you know to envisage you know eighty thousand people in the mcg right yeah so um yeah i think people relate to individual stories a lot better than they do to facts and figures and i, I think that's also one of the major differences between fiction and non-fiction is fiction sort of tells the story it aims to sort of strike at your heart. It's 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 about the emotions that you can create. So that mm. was that was essentially why I chose one story and one person's narrative um, to kind of increase the impact for readers and mm. increase their enjoyment, their entertainment, but also hopefully um, allow them to learn something about Colombia because it's a fascinating mm. and tragic country, but also a very beautiful one with amazing people, as as you know yourself from having travelled there. For sure. So, because Marching Powder, let's 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 just be clear about that. Marching Powder is non-fiction. Marching Powder is completely non-fiction. Yep, and it's yep. set in Bolivia, and this one is fiction, but based around yeah. some pretty intensive research. Yes. Yeah. So that's like kind of like Shantaran, which I mentioned before, which is lo- loosely based on stories and amalgamated into a, a, a fiction story. Did, so, did you set out to write a a fiction novel, or no, you just? So, look, I don't think I knew what I was doing at the beginning. I was just trying to collect as many stories yeah. as possible and they were all fascinating so I kind of wanted to include them all but they weren't necessarily related because they were from yeah. different parts of the country different different people different who didn't know each other so how do you mm. tell the story of you know one one person whose family member gets kidnapped another person who joins the communist group another person who knows about uh, cocaine submarines in this mm. part of the country how do you weave all those stories into a non-fiction story well 
I guess you, I could have written small chapters of nonfiction, yeah. but it wouldn't have had a narrative. It, would, it wouldn't have had, na- had an overall narrative. Yeah, so that's why I decided to switch from nonfiction to fiction. Is that like a? Is it, was that a big decision for you as a writer? Obviously, yeah. you've been a, you're, you're a nonfiction writer. I mean, then you get to, isn't it a whole other realm of? Uh, it's it's, you know, a, you're it's a whole different level. You're not telling a story. You're creating a, a piece of art that you know it's it's more on you as well. Cause exactly. It's, it's um. Different? I mean, I, I just thought I sort of thought the skills would be transferable. You know, if you can write nonfiction, you can just write fiction. Right. I, I think fiction is a completely different beast. It's a lot harder. I'd say about ten times harder. Mm. Um, Why is that? Well, because you have to make it up. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Basically. I mean, the thing is with nonfiction, you know, there's obviously, there, you know, it still requires uh, levels of skill, you know, in, in crafting a story and choosing the facts and choosing how to tell it, keeping engaging readers' interest, but, and, you know, writing, using good language. But the bottom line is with nonfiction is, you know, you're really limited by the truth. And that can be frustrating because you wouldn't, you'd be like, I wouldn't be better if the story ended yeah. this way. Yeah, that's but right. But it didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in, in that sense, there are that's far tough. fewer choices to make in nonfiction, yeah. even though there are a lot of choices. Uh, whereas fiction, you know, potentially the, the only limit is your own imagination, yeah. which is great. It sounds great, but that also makes you doubt yourself a lot more because oh, then it, sure. it puts yeah. a lot more responsibility onto you what as a, a writer. And if you, you can't know, make entertaining, oh, you know, entertaining fiction. Yeah. then you know what can you do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, people. I mean, people are fond of saying, "No, truth is stranger than fiction," right? But if you think about it, why would you anyone want to read a fiction story that was less interesting mm. than a true story? So Absolutely. In fact, so, in fact, with fiction, you actually have to use your imagination to push the boundaries of human experience mm. beyond what you know, beyond reality, mm. but also keep it limited to something which is at least appears to be realistic. Mm, so yeah. it's a really, really fine line. And, you know, every every single line of dialogue, every single decision that every character makes is a creative decision. So mm. it, it's just a lot more, there's just a lot more creativity in fiction than nonfiction. And I, I guess as well, talking about that pressure, do you, do you, on a more general sense, feel some of that with the, um, the release of this new book, based on the success of, of Marching Powder? Yeah, I think I would, have, I would have felt a lot of pressure if, if I'd released this next book within five years of the first yeah. one. It's yeah. now been such a long time. Everyone's, everyone's waiting, waiting on the edge of their seat. Rusty, hey, rusty young. Rusty, <laughs> yeah. rusty who? March, hey, rusty, rusty old. March, <laughs> marching what? Rusty, yeah. rusty relatively old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Rusty older. Rusty at rusty, a good age. Rusty middle age. Um, <laughs> yeah, so look, I mean, look, the main pressure I feel is obviously, you know, having put, my heart and soul and passion into this for the best part of a decade, mm. you know, and also just on a personal level, I'm very, um, you know, dri- dri- I'm a very driven person. So I'm sort of, I guess I'm competing against myself to see whether I could do this. Mm. And I don't, I won't know because I've, I've now lost perspective. I've been working on this book for so long that I don't know whether it's good and I yeah. don't know whether it could just fall flat or people might love it like they like the first one. I will tell you next week, mate. <laughs> yeah, we will. We will. We definitely will. <laughs> so, so wow. you're on track for um, October, you said, to release... It looks like it might get pushed there? back till the following year because I've just missed my deadline. So yes, we'll, yeah. yes. Okay. Mm. Cool. So early next year, people early can next year, March, Columbia, no? March 2017 at the latest. Okay, March, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. And then what happens after you? I mean, it's obviously this is only your second book, so you don't have a huge um, database to, to, to go off. But like after you write a book, especially after Columbiano, you've spent how many how many years? Do you have to? Because I've I know that you plan to write more books, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. But will you need to have, as a writer, do you need a mental, you know, do you need a deload for two years or three years to, to, to just, 
relax or, or yeah, how's it look? I mean, I've been working for eight years on this yeah. one pretty much full time. Yeah. And um, apart from anything, I'm out of money, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so this, had better, this had better do well. Right but, out, right. Uh, this, this, if you have any money, <laughs> just uh, <laughs> send it through to a veteran radio and we'll pass it on. <laughs> we're, we're sitting on a mattress on the floor yeah. in, my, in my parents' house. This is art. This is a struggling artist. Yeah. Um, yeah, so look, I would ideally love to, you know, take a break and go back to what I love doing, which is traveling and writing and doing it for myself. Because there's a point where, you know, it's 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 a perfect life where you can where you can make money and and um, your profession is what your passion is. Like, so mm-hmm. I love writing, but there is also a point where it becomes a job, it becomes a chore, and it becomes, you know, n- not enjoyable because it's yeah. just a, it's just getting up and doing something every day mm-hmm. as as an exercise in discipline. So. I would love to just take a big break from writing and go traveling again if I can afford to do so. What about, um, have you ever thought of, obviously you're a very skilled writer and people know you. Have you ever thought about just travel blogging or writing for a certain company? Surely there'd be offers on the table there if you wanted to go. Yeah, through some I, I mean, I guess, I guess I'll have to see how, I mean, my ideal is just to write my own stories mm. as I, you know, f- to do what I want to do. And, yeah. and if I can afford to do that, then hopefully I won't have to go out and try and Find work, you know, prostitute lot. myself to 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 a blog site. <laughs> Trippy travel, but but <laughs> but if I right for us, I saw you looking for the t-shirt. You were right for a travel. We're right travel. Yeah, there we go. That blog gets read by thirty people. <laughs> so if um yeah, look if if the option is there to if I you know get a following with this next book, then I write another novel, and if not, then yeah, I've got to find other ways to to survive <laughs> and have you sure. got have you got um so with this travel is that will that try and be the basis of your next novel or have you got ideas of where you're going to go next or um, i mean where you're going to go next with your writing or uh look I've, got, I've still got so much material on on the colombian one that if people are interested in Colum- in the colombian book i've only told part one side of the story yeah, um for sure i could easily write another novel or two about colombia cool. but but who knows if i go traveling i might get inspired and i want to write about nepal or china or russia yeah. or you know there's just so many stories out there and you just got to go out and find them so that's um, awesome so okay so where's where's your where's your next where's the next party world you want to go to um, like I love, I've been spending a lot of time in the Philippines recently. So right. I, I love the, my big passion is kiteboarding. So I'll just take okay. my kiteboard everywhere, and that's basically where I've been choosing my where to live based upon the wind. Yeah, <laughs> so cool. where do you get to on the Philippines? Uh, so there's an island called Boracay. We're going Bang. there in November. How's that? Here we go, guys. We've just announced Rusty Young is kiteboarding He's instructor <laughs> on the Adventure Travel Book November yeah. Philippines trip. Yeah, so I've probably spent four months a year in, in Philippines in Boracay really? every year. And yeah, before that I was in a place called Montenegro in the Balkans and yep. Croatia. Did some kiteboarding there. Um, south of Spain, Tarifa. Okay. Um, so yeah, just basically wherever there's wind, mm-hmm. I'll just take my kiteboard and set up, rent a place and write. That's cool. Excellent. And are you pretty happy? I mean, for me, like I said, uh, very early on when I started telling the Bill Kerr story, um, for me, um, traveling totally 100% changed my life. Do you look back and think like how lucky you are that, I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, you, you're a writer that's, you know, where your mum and dad's making jokes about that and stuff. But at, at the end of the day, for me, 100% at the end of your life, you, you don't end up with all the money. You want to end Experience up with all the stories. Experience that way. Yeah, yeah. That's the person that's that's the richer person. So do you, you feel like you're lucky that you, you're able to – because so many people that don't have the chance, they don't have that light bulb moment where they, they, they make this decision to see the world and travel the world and have these experiences. Yeah, like I think my answer would – would would be different now as opposed to six months as opposed to six months henceforth like um 
this time last year when I'd been working on this book for seven years, I showed it to the publisher and I said, look, this is unpublishable. We can't, this is, sorry, we, we can't release this. And I was like, I've just spent seven years of my life yeah. passionately dedicated to, you know, one work of art that I thought was really good. It was that I was, you know, I'd was put my heart and soul into it and mm. I was just going, oh, I got it wrong. You know, cause in, I've made a mistake about how to live seven years of my <laughs> life. Far out. And, and then obviously now I've found a publisher and it's going to come out shortly. And right now, you know, <clears throat> I see a lot of my friends married and happy and got you know, a lot more stable life than I do. Mm. Um, you know, so when I guess it's, it's, it's inevitable that you're going to compare yourself with other people, right? So mm. if you, if, whenever I'm back in Australia, I go, oh, shit, it's so expensive to live here. I can't really afford to live here. Yeah. Uh, if I had stayed here, I'd be, you know, making a lot more money. Or yeah. maybe always make some money. Always yeah. make some money, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It made some money. And then, but then when I'm overseas and I'm, you know, exploring new countries, learning new languages, just following my passion, doing my riding, doing my kiteboarding, mountain biking, adventuring, yeah. I'm like, there's nothing I wouldn't no. change this for the world. So I think 100%. I think a lot of it's about how you're feeling about yourself at the time and whether you made the right decisions. And you know, a year from now when this book's off my plate, I think I'll go, yeah, pat in the back. Uh, but yeah. right now, I'm still feeling a little bit like I don't. I'm not sure whether I've made the right life choices. It's pretty. It's a tough. You know, it's a tough path to follow to be an artist. For sure, absolutely. That, um, absolutely. Just just touching back on what you just mentioned, like you know, taking taking one of your earlier drafts to a publisher and them saying, sorry, it's it's no good. Like what's the mental, does that put you into a deep freaking depression? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I went, you know, I was out of money. It's like getting a divorce, you know, it's like that, <laughs> that's, that, that, it's that work or, or like your, your love life and mm. it's, you're, you're married to the piece I would imagine then. And it's just, that would be a huge. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, I mean, effectively, yeah, you know, my book was probably my. I'm not married, but that was pretty much my child, I guess. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That was my marriage. Was, I was ma- married to my book and my my work, and you put your heart and soul into something, and then obviously uh, when you're in your positive frame of mind, you're like this could change the world. People are going to love this. People are going to be entertained by this. People are going to laugh and cry. And then on your and on your negative days, you go, "This is absolutely crap. No one wants to read it. Mm, yeah. No one's going to want to read it." And then to have that confirmed by inverted commas um, industry experts saying mm-hmm. this is quote unquote unpublishable just confirms the, all your worst fears and paranoias yeah. and makes you go, oh, I'm useless. Um, I've made the I've made bad decisions in my life. This is terrible. And yeah, it threw me into like a big tailspin. And you know, I have a tendency to go out drinking and partying and stuff. And so I went to a bit of a, a negative, self-destructive spiral for a while there got myself out of it I always get always get myself out of my negative spirals by doing um running and and cycling I find yep fitness and just it's kind of like my form of meditation I mm, guess for sure um I got myself back on track and just went you know what that's just one person's opinion or one company's opinion I don't if I'd believed in if I'd listened to other people I would never have followed the path I'd have followed yeah. And so I picked myself back up and Definitely. went traveling again and then found a publisher and hopefully it's all back on track now. But yeah, that's, that's the risk, you know, is that you follow a path and you, and you don't get there. Mm. Hey, just quickly, you mentioned before um, the show how, how much that physical aspect of your life helps with, um, with the mental, um, I, not, I guess not struggle, but um, the ability to keep going and writing. Did you use a lot of that when you were in Colombia? Yeah, yeah. Um, Colombia's um, Bogota, anyways, is a little bit polluted, so it's not the greatest place to be going jogging and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But 
they do produce a lot of really good cyclists because it's up in the top of the Andes. It's two thousand six hundred meters above sea level. Yeah. So and there's obviously huge hills and stuff. That's their that's their real uh, strong strong national sport is cycling. So. Yeah, did a lot of cycling. That, um, every Sunday in Bogota, they close all the main streets and have something called Ciclovia, which is like a really beautiful community day. Um, you know, imagine all the major streets of Melbourne or Sydney were shut down. Mm. People go jogging, cycling, uh, rollerblading, walking. Really? Yeah, it's awesome. just for, That's from 7am awesome. until 2pm, the streets are shut down. And obviously huh. people, you know, motorists get annoyed because they can't drive across the main streets. But it's like, hang on. You know, Screw you guys, get a bike. Yeah, yeah. yeah like it's a, it's a kind of a fitness, like a, it's like a should city-wide be. fitness day. Yeah, and we should so have that. that. Was awesome. How often was that, you say? Every Sunday. We should oh, have that. We should that's have that. That's amazing. Yeah, 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 every Sunday that was uh, Ciclovia. And then obviously I, I was, I'd go to the gym a lot. I'd cycle, I'd go jogging mm. and stuff. So, and... I love, uh, you know, wakeboarding and uh, wherever possible, windsurfing and kiteboarding. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I find there's a real, very high correlation between uh, physical fitness and mental fitness. So yep. when I'm f- really on my game with my riding, I'm doing a lot of uh, a lot of jogging, a lot of cycling, a lot of go to the gym. And then when I'm feeling pretty bad about my book is when I start slackening off and stop going to the gym you and, 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 and start and drinking and start, and, yeah, my yeah. diet will go out and, and then I actually find that my writing, the quality of my writing and my efficiency in my writing, my productivity drops off quite significantly. Mm. And the temptation is to go, I need to spend more time writing. But in fact, the best thing I can do when I'm going through a non-productive part of the cycle is actually get back out there and do lots of fitness. And yeah, then you, yeah. get, you, you get back on top of it mentally. There's a huge correlation, I think, between yeah, fitness and self-discipline. Yeah, sure. I guess it's just the only thing that's hard about it is when you're writing – um, about someone that's constantly feeding you drugs in a prison in uh, South America. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I wasn't doing many marathons yeah. when I was in prison. I'll tell you that. I wasn't doing any many running marathons anyway. <laughs> Mate, I, when, I was in, uh, when I was in Bolivia, we touched down. Oh, we got off a bus, so we didn't fly in, so it was better. We kind of dealt with the altitude a little bit yeah. on the way up. We'd been in Peru and stuff. Yeah. But when I got to Bolivia, um, we got out of the bus and we're walking the streets and we were um, puffed out. Yeah. Like my mate Matt would be going, <gasps> uh, I said, what are you, what's wrong? Because I wasn't really getting altitude I wasn't getting too too badly affected, but my mate just got hit for six, and we'd be walking the streets just. <gasps> it's it's incredible what it does to you. Trying, I couldn't imagine trying to ride a bike in Colombia or do any sort well, of a lot of ex- the um, a lot of these um, Latin American um, soccer teams will go up to Bolivia and do their training in the Altiplano, which is up at sort of four thousand meters. Because if you can if you can get fit and run around it with such thin yeah. oxygen, when you go back down to sea level. Your ox- your blood system becomes really oxygen rich, in fact, so you just yeah. you're going to yeah. be you're going to be far fitter than the other teams. So that that they often do a lot of training there. Yeah, it's cool. Um, what do you reckon, Tommy? Should we go to six from six? I think we should. Yeah. Six from six. Yeah. yeah. What is six? Hey, from it's, six? it's not going to be six from six though, because six from six is normally um, it's basically six rapid fire-ish questions for okay. me, and Tommy. But I don't want them to be rapid fire today. Mm. I'd like to get into this travel side of it. If you mind travel, and mm-hmm. I think we can delve a little bit deeper. Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you got, Tommy? Are you do you want to do you want do you want to flip? Flip things up massively, yeah, and have me go first. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> this is big. This, this is never been done. World. This, this is a normal <laughs> part of the. This is the typical part of the segment, is it? Yeah, that's right. Well, this has never been done before on Adventure <laughs> Radio, where I will talk first. Here we go. Alrighty, Rusty. Uh, what were some of you? Who were some of your role models growing up? If you had any, or some big inspirations? Yeah, obviously my parents are huge role models for me. They're both really hardworking and really supportive. Um, you know, they got really they got. They backed me with my writing career, but at the same time, encouraged me to have a, a backup plan in case it, it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, also, my year seven English teacher, his name was Michael Boylan. He was the one who sort of 
uh, gave me some initial encouragement to to become a writer. He said, yeah, you've got some talent there. Try and follow it up. So right, right. that's it, my parents and uh, my year seven English teacher. Beautiful. Uh, Excellent. Shout out to, uh, was it Michael Borland? Yep. Beautiful. Shout out to Michael Borland. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a big, he's a big uh, adventure fitter, isn't he? So uh, he'll be listening. One of the boys. Yeah. 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 Um, what are some things you, I guess you've got a bit more downtime than you have uh, over the past eight years now, but um, what are some things you like to do when you're, when you're relaxing apart from um, being physical? Yeah, so I don't ever really, I've never really been a relaxed person. I'm always like a switched on person. I have real trouble sleeping. So my form of, I guess, relaxation is going out and smashing myself physically. So yep. going for a 60K cycle or... I just got too excited. Like I'll jog a half marathon to relax and people go, really? that's... That, yeah, yeah, just that's that's what relaxes me. It's like, wow, and that allows me to that allows me to go to sleep basically. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, th- for fun, drinking and yep. uh, kiteboarding. Cool, love it. There's uh, two complete opposite ends of the spectrum. There, <laughs> that's good. Relaxed and uh, and pissed. <laughs> um, now, final one. I'm really pumped about this one. Um, if you could invite three people to dinner, mm-hmm. dead or alive. Dead or alive. <laughs> yeah, dead or alive. Uh, who would they be and why? And just bearing in mind that your family's already there and, you know, any anyone you kind of want to be there as well mm-hmm. um, is there. Obviously, Bill and I will, uh, will be there. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, yeah, you, you guys are two of the that's three. That's right, you got one to go. <laughs> <laughs> one to go. You um, can have a seat too, mate. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's a, a screenplay writer called Aaron Sorkin. He did um, The West Wing. He did Charlie Wilson's War. He did uh, The Social Network. And I just really, I really admire cool. the way he... Um, he writes his dialogue and I'd really love to meet him and get inspired by him. He's, he, he used to have a, he's a pretty interesting guy, but he also used to have um, a massive crack problem, I think. He, oh, yeah? yeah, so, I mean, wow. if you've ever seen the speed of the dialogues that he has in all his movies, it's just like... It makes you, perfect sense. It, yeah, it starts to spin. But there's one story where he was going through LAX and, uh, you know, this guy is, I think he was on a, a four-movie deal with Paramount for $15 million. Like this. So this is a super smart, super educated... Mm-hmm. you know sophisticated guy he walked through LAX metal detector with a crack pipe in his pocket <laughs> and 10 grams of crack and they sort of said so what he's like oh yeah okay what do you mean I can't smoke crack on a lane I've got a meeting I've got to be high for it that's illegal yeah so that's one person um, who else oh no I have to come back to that I, I need to think about that one yeah, cool. Mm. So, um, well, my my questions are um, travel-related, Rusty. I yeah. normally ask our guests uh, if they're a well-traveled, um, mm-hmm. well-traveled person. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you don't need to ask that today. <laughs> um, so, my first question is, what's your favorite destination on the planet and why? And we may have already touched on it. Yeah, de- can- definitely my favorite country, apart from Australia, is Colombia. Absolutely love it. People are so friendly. It's uh, not at all like its reputation. There are some dangers, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, those are abating right now. They've just signed a, a peace agreement with the rebels uh, yesterday, actually. And wow. yeah, just super friendly, really diverse. I love the language. The landscapes are incredible. Mm. And just above all, the, the people are just so friendly. They've just got a real passion for life that you yeah. won't find in any other country. Um Right now, I love the Philippines, really friendly. Yep. I actually really liked Russia. I had a Russian, really? a Russian girlfriend and I know Russia, you grow up with sort of Cold War movies, so you've got this prejudice that's a really kind of hard uh, militant. militant culture. And, and yeah, yeah, they're all, you know, bad people. And uh, Moscow in particular was just amazing and the people are really fun. Russians are, Russians are 
awesome. Mm. Really, really nice people. Sweet. And I actually really like the languages as well. I can't speak it very well, but it's actually a beautiful language as well when you really listen to it, whereas Mm. the way it's portrayed is it sounds like they're spitting in the movies. So there's there's three places, the Philippines, Colombia, and uh, and Russia. Perfect. Um, All right. And the next question is of a similar vein, so it can be anywhere, can be a town, can be a country, can be a continent. Um, What's your dream destination somewhere that you haven't been yet? Somewhere I haven't been. Uh, Next on my list is Nepal. I really want to go, yeah, I want to go through, want to go trekking in Nepal. Mm Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Want to go in September? Yeah. <laughs> it's coming on all, all our trips. Or yeah, that's right. Yeah. L- listen off the uh, you, schedule. You had a look at the website before, <laughs> well, didn't you? That's definitely my uh, my next destination and my book may be finished by then, so that actually could be the time well, I go. Well, 100%. Let's yeah, make yeah. it happen. <laughs> yeah. Cool. We're going in September. Done. I went twice last year. Did you? I did base camp twice last year and okay. I absolutely loved it. Okay. It was just... Um, it was t- once was um, right before the earthquake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there two two weeks before the earthquake. I flew mm-hmm. back, mm-hmm. and then once was six months after, mm-hmm. and um, it was really good to see kind of um, everyone banding together, and you know, mm-hmm. and spirits were still pretty high over there. So tourism's kind of just bubbling Stop. away again, mm-hmm. and it's pretty important for those guys to keep getting people back over there because obviously their economy's just run on tourism. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's just it's just amazing. I thought I thought for myself that how many days I love, you know, hiking through one one wonderful wilderness, you know, and mm-hmm. seeing snow-capped mountains. But I actually thought to myself, all right, you know, fifteen days of this, how much can you really admire Definitely. these snow-capped yeah. mountains? But it's funny because. You're walking through um, tree-lined terrain and over um, over ravines and and through like um, up, um, crazy um, crazy bridges over big rivers and it's all green and then you'll go into um, you'll hit the snow-capped peaks and then you'll go through little valleys and it's mm. just it's actually really really diverse mm. compared to what you would you would think you think you're just seeing you know these snow-capped peaks but yeah it's good so um, that's a good one so um, last one for me is if you were on a desert island. And you had three things to keep you sane. What do you take? Definitely my, if I'm allowed to have like a, a, a laptop with unlimited battery power. Sure, man. <laughs> yeah. Even unlimited battery well, yeah. into a few guests. Right. So it's we realistic. Have you. you can have it. <laughs> yeah, like that, that's that. My definitely writing my diaries and, and you know, being alone with my own thoughts keeps me sane. So yeah. solar, uh, solar charging keypad. Yeah. So, solar charged um, MacBook Pro. Yes. Yeah, yeah, like so it. that... Um, yeah, if I could, if I could have my kite with me for the windy days in the desert, I'd sort of invent maybe a little. I oh no, desert island. Desert island. Okay, yeah. so I'm allowed to go kiteboarding around absolutely. the outside. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. simple. <laughs> Navigate the island uh, every day. Um, <laughs> laptop, kiteboard, and a beautiful woman. Boom. Bad. Sounds good. Nice. Sounds like a good island. Yeah. I'll, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's basically it from uh, from my questions. Did you have two more people you want to take to dinner? No, um, I don't. I'm, I'm happy with Aaron Sorkin. We're just going to sit there and smoke crack. <laughs> Talk really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's good. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, Rusty, so anything you want to plug before we um, before we finish up? Obviously, the new no, book. No, thank you very much for the interview. I really enjoyed it. And I hope people, uh, marching powder readers, um, are inspired to read Colombiano and uh, go traveling. South America is amazing. 100%. And um, where can they find you if they want, you know, inspiration and they want to send you uh, send you an email and tell you? I have finally right. joined Facebook uh, as of late last year. It took me, <laughs> took me a long, long time to finally yeah. join. So I'm on Facebook and I respond pretty quickly. All right, cool. Excellent. Beautiful. Well, that's it from us, mate. Thank, Thank you very much, man. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Tom. Awesome. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. And that's a wrap. All right, guys. So if you like that show, 
please uh, go ahead and subscribe. And if you're already a subscriber, leave us a rating and review. Rating and reviews help us climb the iTunes charts and help us keep growing into the future. Uh, anything that you want show notes wise, that will be in the radio section of our website. So head to www.adventurefittravel.com forward slash radio. You'll find it all in there. And uh, yeah, again, no sponsors. Hope you enjoyed it. And um, yeah, hope you got lots from it and see you next week.